This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberly. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 84. This is the podcast that has everything to do with digital transformation, including the people, process, technology, and strategy sides of change. My name is Eric Kimberling, your host today. I am the CEO of Third Stage Consulting. We're an independent consulting firm that helps clients throughout the world reach their third stages of digital transformation success. We've got a great show for you today. It's going to, quite honestly, be a bit more uh, brain-intensive than most episodes we do meaning that we're going to go deeper into some really cool topics, uh, some pretty deep technical and operational topics uh, related to digital transformations. And the beauty of this is we've got a a host, a variety of guests that are going to be on the show today. Um, First of all, we're going to open up the segment talking about some some news in the marketplace. We're going to talk about some, some new trends within artificial intelligence. We're going to talk about some mixed results of cloud software organizations and some mixed results in terms of financial results, I should say. Um, Some organizations that are overperforming in the cloud space and others that are underperforming and what that means to the future and the present for cloud solutions. And then we're going to get also into uh, Peloton's recent financial result. And Peloton is a health and wellness company and also a technology company that really thrived during the pandemic or the early days of the pandemic and is not thriving now. And so we want to talk about what that means to supply chains and organizations in general, still trying to adjust to this post-pandemic reality uh, that we're in here today. And then we're also going to um, talk about uh, Snowflake. Uh, Snowflake is a data cloud organization, a software organization, and some of their uh, financial results, we're going to cover that as well. And then later in the show, after these uh, um, news topics and hot topics that we'll cover here in the, the opening segment, We're also going to get a few guests on the show, Um, and again, the the two themes that we'll talk about in this show primarily are going to be business process and operations being sort of one thread that we're going to dive into with our first two segments after the the hot topics, and then the latter half of the episode gets more into uh, some more technical aspects of digital transformation um, as it relates to system architecture, cybersecurity, data management, things of that nature. So we're going pretty deep today with different guests into operations and process improvement on one hand, and then the technology space on the other hand. And the first segment after our hot topics is going to be uh, a topic on business process improvement and how it increases business value or can increase business value if you do it right. And we're going to bring uh, Teresa, Brian, and Kyler uh, from the third stage team onto the show to talk through that with us. And then later after that segment, we're going to talk about business process mining tools and the business process mining process that can help you enable business process improvement. So we'll sort of build on that first segment, talking about business process improvement in general. Then we'll dive into business process mining with Wayne Holtham, who is the executive vice president of Third Stage Consulting in Asia Pacific. 
And then after Wayne is on the show, we'll bring on uh, Mitch and Kyler from the third stage team. Uh, they're going to be on here talking about system architecture and design. Um, Kyler had a chance to interview uh, Mitch to talk about that whole thread of system architecture or design, how to tie together different systems, how to build a technical architecture as part of your digital transformation. So we want to play you that clip because that's a great conversation to sort of uh, set the overarching context for technical work streams within a digital transformation. And then finally, last but not least, we'll have Khalid and Kyler on the show talking about cybersecurity and data management. Uh, cybersecurity is obviously a huge thing right now. That's where uh, a lot of organizations are facing the most risk and really trying to tighten up their systems. So we'll talk about cybersecurity uh, in that last segment, as well as how to implement effective master data management or data management processes in general. So great show for you today. Really excited for, for you here uh, to, to get through some of these topics. But first, I wanted to uh, talk about some, some emerging trends or some newsworthy items, hot topics in the marketplace. Um, first thing I want to talk about is AI and just some different uh, views of artificial intelligence. And actually, these articles that I'm referring to are articles that were published on the Diginomica website. If, if you aren't familiar with that website, it's a, it's a pretty cool uh, newsworthy website that also is a bit opinionated, but provides good analysis and news and is uh, fairly untethered from the the usual uh, vendor marketing sales spin that you see in, in news. So they, they have an interesting take on things. In fact, if you listen to this episode regularly, or if you listen to this podcast regularly, we had a guest on here named John Reed, who is one of the founders and key contributors to Diginomica. Uh, he was on the show uh, several months ago. Um, so great website. If you don't read it already, be sure to check it out. It's got some really interesting articles. But these two articles about artificial intelligence are both from Diginomica. Uh, the week before last, they, they published these articles. One was about um, how AI needs to be audited for humanity's sake, um, which I found really interesting because I hadn't really ever thought of artificial intelligence and auditing going together. But this article talks about how there is a risk of people misusing AI and basically hacking or corrupting the data that feeds into AI, uh, but and over-trusting AI without having any sort of human checks and balances or any sort of audit checks and balances. So uh, very interesting thought process and a very interesting dilemma or question that I honestly had never really thought about. Um, we've talked about artificial intelligence quite a bit on the show in the past, and that hasn't been an angle that we've really covered or, or talked about. But really, what it's the gist of the article is that it's talking about how when you have something as powerful as AI and you have something that's becoming as widespread as AI, there's going to be the opportunity for malfeasance or, or sort of corrupt behavior um, that can um, misuse artificial intelligence. And they use as examples, you know, financial services is one potential industry that might face that sort of challenge or, or that sort of risk at a higher level than others. And it basically is talking about how there there's likely to be or there should be some sort of regulation, government regulation of AI, some sort of audit regulation or some sort of check and balance to ensure that this doesn't happen. And the article refers back to, you know, back to the days of Enron and how it, it took government intervention to, to fix that problem prior to that government intervention uh, with Enron back, you know, 20 years ago with uh, some of the, the um, you know, borderline criminal behavior. I think it was criminal behavior from what I recall. 
if anything, at, at the very least, highly unethical behavior from, from Enron and the way that company sort of misled investors and, and misled uh, the public. Uh, but it bring, it sort of ties us all together to say that AI has the risk of having big problems like that, and the government should get ahead of that to, to regulate. Now, of course, I, I have mixed feelings on government regulation in general, like many people probably do. Um, and so the question becomes, you know, does government really have the answer? Maybe they do, maybe they don't. But I think it brings up a more fundamental, interesting question, which is sort of the ethics of AI and how do we ensure that we still – uh, knowing that this is a young, emerging, nascent sort of technology, how do we ensure that we're not uh, experiencing unethical behavior or misuse of artificial intelligence? So that's a, a really interesting article and something that, that brings up some good questions. I don't know that I fully agree with the, the recommendations in the article necessarily, although to be fair, I haven't fully thought this through. And it's a, just a very interesting point of discussion. I'd be curious to hear what the audience here thinks about that concept or if you have any additional um, thoughts around that. But that really interesting article um, as it relates to AI and, and the need to audit AI. And then sort of on the flip side, looking at the more positive side of artificial intelligence, um, the same website, uh, Diginomica, also published an article uh, within a day of that same article I just referenced uh, a couple weeks ago, um, an article called How AI-Enabled Video Tech is Improving Safety Across the Supply Chain. And it's a really interesting article because not only does it tie into two topics that I'm really interested in, artificial intelligence and supply chain management, but it talks about how the use of AI is continuing to evolve and we're continuing, continuously finding new case studies and examples of how AI can be used to improve businesses. And in this article, Diginomica is talking quite a bit about how Video technology can be used and is being used at some larger organizations to capture safety information, like in a, in a warehouse, for example, having cameras on forklifts to where you can see and, and track and record what's happening out on the warehouse floor. And when there's an accident, you've captured it on video and you can use that for coaching purposes and ways to increase safety. And also using AI combined with that video technology, you can start to anticipate where potential risks might be or what sort of patterns you're seeing with employees and what sort of things that are compromising your safety in a warehouse. And that's, this is sort of a microscopic example of one use case of how AI and video technology combined can be used in a different way to reduce safety incidents. And the article points to some pretty significant material uh, uh, reductions in safety incidents and accidents in this particular organization that they are writing about. And it's really interesting because it makes you think about, you know, all the ways we haven't quite thought about or figured out how we can use artificial intelligence in a way to improve something like safety. And it's not just safety either. The article also talks about how it's actually driving improved bottom line results for the organization. As a result of less safety incidents, their insurance rates have dropped. Overall profitability goes up. Employee attrition has actually, uh, I think it was either four or five times less than the industry average for this particular organization. And they attribute much of that to the fact that they're using AI. They're using this video technology to help coach and guide and anticipate uh, where employee accidents might happen. So really interesting thoughts and just, you know, interesting really sort of stretch our minds and think about how AI can be used in different ways, particularly when we combine AI with other sorts of of emerging and, and popular technologies like something like video or biometrics and things of that nature. So 
really interesting stuff there on the Diginomico website. Uh, if you get a chance to check those articles, they're very good. And like I said, check out the website in general. It's a, they put out articles every day. They're really interesting and uh, sometimes controversial. Sometimes they, they uh, are very opinionated, but it's done so in a way that can uh, that's well, that they justify themselves, obviously, in, the, in their discussions, but something that really is meant to stimulate a lot of conversation. So I want to shift gears now away from AI and talk about the cloud and what some of the leading cloud or what two particularly important cloud providers in the space are experiencing in terms of financial results and talk a bit about what it means in terms of the, the long-term, the short-term and long-term viability and profitability of cloud providers. So I'm going to start off with salesforce.com. Uh, of course, the Salesforce is the CRM provider, uh, leading CRM provider in the marketplace. Uh, they also provide a platform that uh, third-party developers can, can create apps and different variations of Salesforce on the Force platform. And those third-party apps can be tailored to different industries or, or provide additional functionality to the core Salesforce solution. So really interesting company. They've been around for, I think, 20 or 25 years now. And the interesting thing, though, that I found really interesting, and I'm not sure what it means for the overall current short-term landscape for cloud ERP or cloud technology solutions, but the uh, company reported just the other week in the Wall Street Journal, they, they published an article about this, about how they reported that, uh, that their revenue for 2023, for, for the fiscal year 2023, was estimated to be right around $31 billion, which is pretty significant. That's larger than most software organizations in the marketplace. But the problem is that's a downward guidance. They were originally planning on somewhere around $32 billion for 2023 or for the fiscal year ending in 2023. Um, so they've, they've shaved a, close to a billion dollars off their, their annual revenue or their expected annual revenue uh, projections. And as a result, the stock market or the stock price uh, dropped pretty significantly. It dropped 5% uh, right after they announced this. Um, and it was sort of a letdown or a disappointment from what other uh, investors were expecting. So it does make you wonder, you know, what does that mean? Is that something that's a macroeconomic trend in the market? Is that, is that a, a foreshadowing of less capital spending on technology? Are companies getting more conservative with their spending? Is this a Salesforce problem? Is it isolated to Salesforce? I don't know that I have a good question or a good answer to that, um, but I do know that you know a lot of other organizations in the tech space are doing well and continuing to improve their their results. So we we'll want to keep an eye on that and see what it means for you know for Salesforce in particular, and and see if there's any signs of similar guidance shortfalls for other cloud and and general tech providers. Now, if we flip the coin here and look at another cloud software provider. This one is Snowflake. Uh, Snowflake is a, if you're not familiar with it, it's a data cloud organization. It's a pretty cool technology that sort of ties together uh, multiple data sources and provides you analytics and reporting and, and sort of um, general understanding and better visibility into multiple data sources. So uh, pretty, you know, emerging technology. And what's interesting about Snowflake is that they the company just reported their results for the second quarter of the year, and they reported a loss on about close to $500 million in revenue uh, for the quarter, which means they're you know, right around a $2 billion uh, organization, but they lost a lot of money too. They lost $0.70 cents a share 
uh, which I'm not sure what that translates to uh, overall, you know, for the total uh, loss for the organization. But what I find really interesting, though, is that Snowflake is losing money as an organization, which you see a lot in the tech space, especially as they're scaling up and growing quickly like Snowflake has been. Um, but the loss was less than it was a year ago. So they lost less money, still not profitable, but they're losing less money. But the shares are up 17% uh, right after they, they had issued those results. So sort of a, a similar story here in that you've got one company in the case of Salesforce that's scaling back their expectations and suggesting that maybe they, the future, the short-term immediate future of their organization isn't as financially desirable as expected just a few months ago. Um, and they got hammered or they got pummeled in the in their share price. But then you've got Snowflake that is not profitable. You know, Salesforce is still profitable. They're a really a big company, but they fell short of expectations. Snowflake is a, quite a bit smaller, losing money, but losing not as much money as they were before. And their share price shoots up 17% right after those results. So interesting to see, you know, what what's happening here. It's, it's uh, Snowflake is an organization I'll, I'll definitely keep an eye on just to understand and, and keep an eye on what, what's happening there. And again, Snowflake's just kind of a cool technology that's different. You know, it's an alternative to your usual sort of ERP or enterprise-wide tech solutions. It's a way to provide a technology that maybe makes use of what you've already got rather than necessarily having to rip out the, the guts of your systems uh, at the enterprise-wide level. And then the last hot topic I wanted to cover here today that's very newsworthy and, and uh, indicative of the world we're in here today is Peloton. So Peloton is the health and fitness company. They're known for their bikes um, with the subscription to the online courses you can take on the bike, uh, instructor-led courses. And uh, so sort of a, a product and technology co company combined. Um, they have the appeal or the attractiveness of sort of a SaaS model in that you have these subscriptions that people are paying for. When they buy the bike, they also buy a subscription to the online service. And so it's sort of like they were straddling the best of both worlds uh, for a time there, the, the product company, the technology piece of it. Certainly during COVID, I mean, demand for Pelotons just skyrocketed and the company really took off and did really well for probably about a year or two, a year and a half after the pandemic started because more people had to work out at home and they were looking for options uh, to stay active and healthy, knowing that they couldn't go to gyms in the, in the short term. So, you know, that's the good news. That was sort of Peloton's uh, really uh, accelerated growth trajectory after the pandemic. But just, uh, just recently, uh, within the last few days, uh, Peloton issued their quarterly results that showed that they lost over $1.2 billion um, as their bikes and their treadmills, the sales of their bikes and treadmills um, have really dropped pretty dramatically. So um, it was interesting because that, that revenue drop was, was off 30%. So the revenue dropped 30%, which is just massive for, for a company that size. Um, and then they lost a total of $2.8 billion for the entire year that just ended on June 30th. Um, and they had lost $189 million the prior year so they went from $189 million loss to $2.8 billion. So obviously they're bleeding financially. And it's interesting because I think what, what you see here, and it's, this isn't just about Peloton, I think you're seeing this a lot throughout the world right now, is you had the pandemic world and sort of the immediate short-term effect 
of COVID in early 2020 and throughout 2020, even into 2021. And you saw this surge in demand for certain products and services and then a, a steep drop in others. And it really screwed up our economy. It screwed up the global economy and purchasing behavior and people's planning within the organizations. Um, and that you know, create a lot of challenges. And then, of course, we've all we've all heard about the supply chain issues that still are the ripple effect of the lockdowns and just general supply chain disruptions that are partly because of lockdowns and partly because it you know our world was so disrupted uh, at the end consumer level uh, in terms of the way we individually work and operate and do our day to day lives, but also because of that surge in demand in some areas and then declines in demand in other areas, it just threw off the world as we knew it. And so it really threw off uh, supply chains and still is something that uh, we're still trying to recover from globally uh, in terms of how we how we manage the supply chain. So this Peloton example is just another reminder that a lot of organizations are facing unchartered territories and pretty choppy waters that they're trying to navigate as they try to figure out what is consumer demand going to look like? What's the supply chain going to look like? What uh, health implications might there be looming in the future with, with uh, the COVID pandemic or other pandemics? Um, there's just a lot of uncertainty right now, and it really points to the, the fact that organizations need to be smarter. They need to use technology where they can to, to be smarter and be more flexible and more agile, more nimble, all those sorts of things. So that Peloton case study, I think, is a good example of that. So really interesting stuff, and I think that um, hopefully leads us into some of the conversations we're going to have today with some of our guests related to process improvement, business process mining, system architecture, as well as cybersecurity and data management. All that stuff you know, sort of ties into what we're all dealing with uh, as businesses and as organizations and digital and as digital transformation teams to deal with some of those, those challenges. So um, interesting stuff there. And so what I want to do here today um, after a quick break is we're going to bring Teresa, Brian, and Kyler from the third stage team onto the show. And we're going to talk with them about business process improvement and how, how first of all, what is business process improvement? What are the ways you should do it? And how does that increase or how can that increase business value for digital transformations? And interestingly enough, and strangely enough, not enough organizations think about increasing business value when they go through a major digital transformation. A lot of times they're, they're doing it for technology's sake. So we're going to talk today about how maybe we shift that thinking and focus on the business process side of things. So we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com.
Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 84. My name is Eric Kimberling. You can find new episodes of this podcast every Wednesday on YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, as well as all the audio podcast platforms. So be sure to check us out there. And if you don't mind, drop us a review too. Whatever, wherever you listen to this show at, uh, whatever episode you're listening to right now, I suppose you're listening to this episode, so I, I take that back. But whatever uh, platform you're listening to the show on, Please drop us a review, let us know what you think of it, leave us a comment. That feedback is super helpful and we do read all of that stuff. We may not reply to them all each individually, but we do take that feedback seriously and we use it to make this a better show over time. So I'm excited for our next guests here. Uh, Teresa, Brian, and Kyler are going to chat with us about business process improvement and how to increase business value. And this is really going to set up the conversations we have later in the show, uh, particularly the one after this where we're going to get get into business process mining, which is a really cool technology and a really cool process you can use to enable some of the business process improvement stuff that we're going to talk about here in this segment. So with all that being said, let's cut over to Teresa, Brian, and Kyler to talk about business process improvement. Guys, welcome to the show. Just ask you, how do you see business process management enabling or relating to operational excellence? And and Brian, I'll start with you and, and let uh, Teresa kind of weigh in as well. Sure. So um, it, it's a really critical element. I know we were talking about a little bit in the at the end of the last session. I was watching with uh, Amanda and Christy about the the importance of your business processes, really what's driving you as an organization, and that um, whatever um, efforts we have on strategy and uh, other things about kind of the big picture of the business, the way it actually gets executed and turns into how you're operating as a business ties into what your business processes are, what your people are doing on a day-to-day -day basis uh, on the ground, and not just what you think your business processes are, but what's actually happening out there. So uh, it's a really critical focus that you have a good understanding of what your processes are, what's, what's happening, uh in, in real life with uh whether on the shop floor or at, at the people's desks as they're getting work done and having a clear picture of the reality uh, of your business processes because that's going to translate into what your results are for your customers what your quality is you're able to be able to achieve uh, everything along those lines excellent anything to add to that teresa especially from the human component side um i think that that's something that you really bring to the table um as we have our, our um, holistic type of conversation today. Sure, so in my opinion, operational excellence really has that broader holistic look at the business ecosystem, which I kind of talked about yesterday, touched upon mm -hmm. that. And then the BPM helps to focus when those opportunities are identified, right? So when you're talking about, in my opinion, business process management, that is a tool set. And I know there are a lot of similar uh, methodologies out there that are comparable to BPM. So like you have your uh, Lean Six Sigma, Lean Manufacturing, Shane and Red X theories, PDCA, et cetera, et cetera. But they still have a core process, uh, core steps in the process, right? So designing, you're, you're uh, modeling, you're executing, you're monitoring, and then you're going back and optimize, optimize, optimize. So that's how I see it fitting together. Like the operational excellence is that umbrella type thing. And then the BPM is underneath it. 
The other things that are underneath it, as Brian mentioned, are the, you know, the changing, the, the change management, the um, leadership component, process, culture, environment, et cetera, et cetera. So that's kind of, in my opinion, how they fit together and how they complement each other. Um, one really helps to identify where those opportunities exist and the other help to drive and optimize the other, those processes. Absolutely. I think that, um, you know, just the marriage between the two is always important to consider. And I know Sam said over here, um, some of my clients say our processes are different. And then they say, surely everyone does it our way. So definitely <laughs> a, a good piece of feedback there. Um, and then I'll address one question from the audience so that we can do this in real time. Um, Dan asks, in the context of digital transformation, how do you use BI software to develop KPIs and dashboards to align with business metrics? So I'll go to you first on that one, Brian. And I'm just going to tweak the way I, I look at that question too from Dan is that um, I you start with developing the KPIs outside of the BI software. The KPIs are really a business decision about what are the things that matter that you need to measure as what's critical uh, to your business. How are you going to measure your success? How are you going to measure how your processes are doing? So you need to make sure you have a mix of leading and lagging indicators as well, not just the things, your revenue numbers, your um, efficiency numbers, any cost numbers, anything like that. But you also need to have in there things that are assessing how your people are doing, the health of your processes, and making sure you have a well-rounded mix, whether that's using the balanced scorecard or just generally making sure you have a, a set of metrics that are uh, across the board, kind of measuring what you need to know. And then driving from that to uh, developing the dashboards and, and the reporting that you're going to need that align to those business needs. So um, in a digital transformation, if we're talking uh, an ERP implementation, you're often going to have robust reporting capabilities tied to what's inside the ERP that are going to uh, uh, aggregate a lot of that information and can give you a lot of uh, data there. But there also may be data you're going to need to be pulling in and very likely data you'll need from uh, other sources as well. So whether that's pulling a BI tool or, you know, depending on the complexity of the data, being able to uh, aggregate uh, outside of the system uh, as a way to be able to get comprehensive and holistic measures of what you're doing. Excellent. Great answer. That was a great answer. <laughs> If I can add anything onto that <laughs> other than continuous improvement. So that's, 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 that's a great answer. I can't add anything to that other, other than as your, your targets are hit, your goals are met, continuous improvement is very, very important, right? So where you establish a KPI, you reach your KPI, you manage it, you, you sustain it, you need to get another one, right? Mm -hmm. So point being, this work is, is live work. It's not a one and done. It's a continuous cycle of improvement. But high five to you, man. That was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Mic drop there. You know? Sure and, did. And, Bam. And, and I, Sam's got a follow-up question there, too, that I think... Uh, feeds right into that. And I see we have a couple other uh, comments mm -hmm. too we can address, but inappropriate KPIs uh, can lead to people doing the wrong things. You know, mm -hmm. if you measure that, and it can be very easy to say, let's measure this thing that's the easiest thing for us to track, even if it's not the most important thing. And then you're driving your behavior, especially if you line up incentives towards that. So Sam, it's a great question because choosing the wrong KPIs is going to uh, incent the wrong behavior. Yeah. So to, to add on to that, um, the decision to monitor and measure a KPI is very important. 
Um, a lot of time clients ask, you know, what should we monitor? What should we look at? And I always refer them back to what is your process telling you? What is what is the voice of your you know, customer, your business performance, uh, your processes, when you do that work and you understand comparatively how all of these different voices um, are sounding or what they're telling you, that's how you can really drill down to the proper KPI. Um, one, also th one thing that I also like to mention is making that KPI rolls up into the overall strategy of the business, um, especially the ones that are like on fire and we need to do it now. Um, those need to be interconnected with each other to make sure that we are meeting the needs of the area, yes, but also speaking to the goals and the strategy of the company, right? You have to make sure that the work you're doing is value added. It has to be um, tied back to that overall um, strategy, like I said, and then it comes down to what depart at the department level for that KPI, how are we performing? Absolutely, and, and when we're talking about BPM efforts, who should we be involving within that conversation from a high level? And Teresa, let's start sure. with you. So we My turn. Last time, <laughs> I don't want him to keep one upping you. You know, My I, I, turn, I, I, Brian. <laughs> so, so again, I think that that when you look at the 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 work that you're going to do for the business process uh, management or whatever term you want to use, it's important to understand from a higher level what that strategy and that goal looks like, and as well as listening to your processes, your business, et cetera. You have to align it, as I just mentioned, because if you're not, you're going to be working towards something you know, at that level they might not see or understand as a value-added activity. So this activity is it's it's uh, an investment. It is something that they're willing to, you know, put some capital on. So we have to make sure that we we show them that return by speaking directly to that overall strategy. Absolutely. Anything to add, Brian? Yeah, and I would just say, as far as the people who are involved, it's really important to to get a look at it from a broad perspective and a, and a deep perspective. The comments earlier, you know, it's important to know what's actually happening on the ground. You don't just want to have the managers uh, in sessions talking about how they designed the process 10 years ago. That may be how it yeah. works, but uh, that's you need to make sure you're getting input from people who are actually um, working on processes. And what's important too is making sure that you are uh, getting cross-functional discussion going. That's usually a big part of where you're going to see problems in the processes is handoff. So we often start with a client and get kind of a bird's eye view of their processes and people when they want to set up workshops with us when we start an engagement it often is let's start with this department and we'll talk to this department and this department but then you're missing the whole part of where they work together and where you may see challenges because something that's optimized for the first group and then for who they hand it off to downstream they optimize what they're doing but in between yeah. there's a lot of gaps so it's it's really critical to make sure you're you're getting people talking to each other Absolutely. Um, so I, I want to just add to that. Um, when you're selecting that KPI and you get the direction, you have the data to prove it. You just have to say, have the data to prove it, right? Then to Brian's point, making sure that the people that you select to uh, understand what those opportunities are. I personally use um, a cross-functional uh, workstream diagram to understand the, the interconnectedness between all of the different stakeholders in the group. Um, it, it's really important to make sure that everyone has 
a, a free conversation. You know, we all need to understand what's going on. Tell me like it is, you know, put everything on the table so we can figure it out. I can't tell you how important that is. Usually when, you know, Brian and I have had this discussion 10,000 times, you know, you, you go to a client, you say, hey, uh, for your calibration process, who are your major stakeholders, right? Okay, well, you tell me three people. And then after Brian and I kind of have the conversation, ask those probing questions, it goes from three to five to eight different stakeholders. You know, that's when the fun starts and you do the work and people think my process is this big. And now it's like I can't even have enough room on the screen to show you where my hands are. But that's how big their processes are. And then when you show them, hey, this is what your process looks like. They see the pain points. They see the issues. They see how convoluted it is. And it just blows their mind. That's kind of fun for me. I don't know if it's in a, a weird way, but it just it goes to show you like you have to have the work. You got to do the work. You got to ask the questions. You have to be willing to tell me why this you know process has 20 different workarounds that they know, but they don't want to know about. And then let's fix it. Well, Teresa, I don't consider that weird fun. I mean, you and I, right after we get off this call, are jumping on with a client to have exactly that type of conversation to blow out a process. It's going to be awesome. That's excellent. Yeah, so important to have that cross-functional understanding, it sounds like. So let's go to an, another audience question here. We're getting some great questions, so I'm going to start at the beginning. Um, can you tell us which ERPs have strong BPM workflow engines? as a part of the software to automate tasks such as sending automatic emails, texts for approving purchase orders, etc. Let's go to Brian yeah. first. Yeah, so it's an interesting dynamic in this because workflow has become a, a basic expectation within ERP systems, but you also do see that some um, have pretty basic workflow set up and, and you have others that uh, build out in a more robust way or that are going to give you some add-ons that can do that. But, you know, part of what I want to address in this too is uh, from my perspective, before I was in the ERP world, I actually spent more time in the BPM system. <coughs> so working with uh, technologies that were built specifically to uh, develop custom processes and build out really enhanced uh, workflow capabilities along those lines. So I, I think the key thing there too is really understanding uh, for any client, like what is the what is the depth of workflow that you really need? And to the point of uh, another comment we had in the chat earlier, like how different are some of those processes that you're, you're doing? Most most companies do think what they're doing is pretty different, and then it takes digging into it to understand what parts of what they do are different. Because usually there's something, but uh, it, it's understanding what parts can really fit into very um, common workflows uh, that are used, or are do you have some really unique needs within your business that are going to drive you towards needing um, something really custom for you? So I don't want to really get into too much of differentiating which systems as much as making sure you kind of have an understanding of how to identify what your needs are and tailor your decisions to that. Great. Anything to add to that? Okay. No, that was good. That's <laughs> Perfect. I'm going to have to not be on so many of these as a partner with you, man. This is like, no, I'm only yeah. joking. You're awesome. You're, it's, you're great. Yeah. Yeah, Brian, Thanks. if he wasn't so busy doing all the clients, he's so highly requested, we'd always have him on our marketing materials because he is incredibly articulate, especially in these complicated type of, of processes. Um, so another audience question here, what is the difference between measures, metrics, and KPIs? I would say 
that probably is the same thing as KPIs, but I wanted to ask the experts um, and maybe we can spin that into, you know, establishing those KPIs on what level of the organization. Okay. Yeah. So yes, I, I do agree that they are very similar. And like I, I mentioned earlier, in my opinion, you know, even when you look at BPI, that is one version of a methodology tool, you know, a toolbox or framework. So it depends, honestly, in my opinion, I, I use KPIs all the time. Uh, the metrics KPI, those are interchangeable for me. Um, and then when you talk about how do you measure them or where do you measure them? Um, when I used to work uh, for the big three, the automotive uh, big three, we always had to measure a KPI from that Hoshan Conry look, right? It's very high level and it kind of goes down. So yes, I'm tracking this specific metric, but it's going to be broken out differently on every department or every team to see how my piece of the operation contributes to that performance for that metric, which rolls up to that overall KPI. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Excellent. And then I'm just going to keep pumping these audience questions. We're kind of sure. jumping all over the place, but I feel like, you know, addressing these questions and, and you know, really getting to what the core of what our audience wants to hear. So I like this question because I think it's super important to um, address. How soon in the implementation process do you map the business processes? Yeah, and thanks. Yeah. Thanks for that question, Jean. Great um, question. It is. Yeah, that's a great question. So, in my opinion, it's just like change management. You need to do it as soon as you hear about it. So, to me, uh, you know, I usually am brought in like midway, um, or when things are not adding up, it's best. It's be It's it's a best better use of time if you bring us in early so we can understand, you know, your current state. What are your issues? What are your you know, what are your requirements? What are your pain points? So when we understand what that landscape looks like, it helps the vendor, whoever we're working with, understand that client. So I, I just had this conversation yesterday. You can't put, you know, a, a square peg out of the box into a round hole and expect it to work. It, it's not going to work. So when you have that crosswalk of, okay, here's my, my current state process now. These are all the issues, pain points, et cetera. Here's the vendor software. This is what we're offering. That transition state is where a lot of a lot of the translation gets lost. And then the customer is frustrated. So, you know, I told you this is an issue for me, but I see the demonstration or I see the workshop. I'm not seeing how these things are connected. But when the vendor has that information, they can directly relay it back to the client during those sessions. So that light bulb goes off like, oh, okay. That was my pain point on that workflow in this area. You just demonstrated to me how it's going to be solved. And that way you have a level of comfort from the client of understanding buy-in, right? Adaptability and usage that you would not have had you not done that work earlier. But, you know, if you bring us in and it's midway, it's still a, a worthwhile venture because now we're going to have a solution to your, to your pain. Yeah, totally. It's 
at, at whatever point you're talking about it, you should be mapping your processes. Um, the implementation in many ways, uh, and Gene, I know you you know this from having worked with you on, on this, of getting uh, some work done in your processes early on. But I think what's important to think about too is um, the, the depth of how much you go into different processes can vary based on where you're at and on the need to keep it moving. So you may not need to go into every process at immense levels of detail up front. In fact, we don't want to go into too much detail uh, on as you're in the early stages of figuring things out. So you're going to get progressively deeper as you get into the process and uh, and keep iterating that and, and building a deeper understanding of what you're trying to get to. Excellent. Great answers. The audience agrees as well. Um, five stars. Five out of five. <laughs> so I, I think that's awesome. <laughs> I'd love for you guys to share a specific example from your experience on how operational excellence um, can be supported by technology. So we'd love to hear kind of a, a case study piece of that. So let's start with you, Brian. Sure, so, uh, and it's interesting too, the example I'll, I'll start with is one that has kind of moved from varying degrees of maturity of technology as well mm -hmm. too. So uh, when I was working in a retirement services organization, uh, we had a very complicated process for uh, onboarding new retirement plans. It would take months to go through it. Sometimes it could be a year if it was really complicated. And there is kind of a playbook and a standard set of tasks around that, but it's very adaptable based on what the needs are, what the organization has, and, and what they're trying to do. And um, this was managed through spreadsheets and Word docs when I started getting involved in that. And um, we actually had a uh, tried to implement a BPM system that wasn't as tailored to the needs of, of what they required and ended up not using it for some portions of it, but they ended up going with a Microsoft InfoPath solution, which helped uh, bridge some of the gaps. And um, it, it was more of a business-driven technology than an enterprise-level technology, but it helped uh, help meet some of the needs and really define out some of what the organization needed. And you were seeing it on some of the KPIs around implementation of uh, and onboarding of the retirement plans. And that moved then towards um, adopting a, um, a stronger BPM solution, more of an enterprise technology uh, that was used to replace uh, those uh, InfoPath workflows and, and data point, database behind it that were being used as a way of really uh, managing it more robustly, having as part of kind of your IT organization, having uh, business continuity, backups, that type of thing too, as you implement an enterprise technology as well as some more robust integration capabilities and other things in the organization. So there is an example where implementing um, the most complex technology that could meet all the needs wasn't necessarily the answer right away because there were so many variables in the process that even trying to map them out, we we hadn't figured out and some of it were really building that out through the um, intermediate step of InfoPath. Okay, we're here with Teresa, Kyler, and Brian talking about business process improvement and the impact on business value. We've got a lot more conversation left, so let's take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or 
download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 84. We're here with Teresa, Kyler, and Brian talking about business process improvement and how it can be used to increase business value as part of a digital transformation. Absolutely. What about you, Teresa? What's your experience kind of within that area? Um, well, again, so we'll repeat that primary question once again. I got all wrapped up in what Brian was saying. <laughs> Yeah, I think what, what um, I was asking is just for a specific case study or some experience you've had on how technology can enable that operational excellence that's supported by those BPM efforts. So, yeah, a lot of times when, for me, when I'm rolling out like the specific activity, and this is after the, the vendor or after the client has selected a vendor, right? Um, understanding, again, how that technology is work and speaking to the actual performance of the work, it, it's, it's important for me. So, for example, uh, one of the hospitals that I used to work for, um, they selected the Epic system, right? So you have this major system that they're trying to implement to understand how it's going to work in every one of the, the different departments across the hospital. Well, again, it, it wasn't helpful just by rolling out that, you know, out of the box technology, it kind of created a, a stall in the uh, timeline. So what we had to do is we had to go back and look at those processes by department, actually it was by hospital, by department to understand how this information is going to work. And what we discovered was that that crosswalk between what we were doing now and what the system offered, it wasn't there. It wasn't there at all. So we had to go back to the Epic system to say, hey, this is, we need to do more customization. We need to do more training. We need to do more you know, work on how these things are going to connect with the teams because it's not happening. Mm -hmm. So that, that was a lot of work that we had to do, but it was well, very well worth it. And by using the BPM and the operational excellence, we can identify those opportunities and go back to the vendor to say, hey, this is what we need. And it, and it ended up working out. So we did it at one hospital that got merged with two other systems. So we took mm -hmm. that process and merged it across, I think it was like 16 hospitals. Wow. Wow, definitely. Yes, a, yeah, a it was a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but, I, but again, I think it, it speaks back to really understanding from that OpEx perspective what's going on. You know, yeah, I have my technology. Yes, I do. But but how is it going to fit within my business ecosystem? How, how mm -hmm. am I going to be able to uh, optimally and, and efficiently roll all of this out to you know, 16 different hospitals and how many departments and how many shifts of how many people that are using the system. So, yeah, absolutely. And especially something so critical as healthcare, yeah, well, you know, that that's something that 
that certainly needs a lot of attention and, and just a lot of obviously process management. So I'll give you a, a very simple uh, example of, of that work. Um, when you first roll out that, that um, system, for example, in the ER, they had the, the physician filling out all this information mm -hmm. on the screen. Well, we did not see a high level of adoption or usage. There was a lot of defect, a lot of calls coming in, a lot of tickets being uh, submitted, and we didn't understand why. So when we took the time from our process, like I was the uh, operational excellence uh, consultant on that, to go and actually look to see what was happening, mm -hmm. the physician had his back turned to the, to the patient to fill all this information out. That's not what doctors do. That's, that's not what they do. They're supposed to help the patient in the bed and speak to them directly. So right. by understanding from an operational excellence position in a, in a, in a process um, investigation, I looked to see what was going on. I interviewed people that I understood, okay, we cannot have the physician with the back turned. He has to be, or she has to be directly speaking to the patient and, and comforting the patient and understanding what's going on. So as, as a result of that, we had to get either one of those, and this is, I, I'm not going to date myself, but this is back in the day. We, <laughs> we had to get like little tablets or even a scribe to do the work for the doctor or get that, get that information into the system for the, uh, for, for the, the data gathering piece. So again, when you look at what's going on and how it's performing, you have to dig in. And we would never have known that had I not done that. It would right. have just been, okay, exactly. the physicians aren't using this and it doesn't work. Well, that's not true. Uh, <laughs> let's figure it yeah. out. Yeah. The experience and really unpacking that. And I think, this is a good question from our audience to kind of go along with that. Um, when implementing BPM, how much time do you typically spend on the as is process versus assuming that workflows are inadequate in the old system and moving right to the to be? So kind of current state versus future state. How What's the balance there? So are you saying current state maps that I've had in my system for a while versus current state as it's performing right now. So that, cause that's like two different things. Like I'll have my maps in my drawer versus what people are really doing. Yeah. And, and Dan, you can definitely elaborate, but I think what we're saying is how do you, how much time should you spend analyzing a process that you know is broken as opposed to Repivoting and focus on the strategy or the future state that you want it to be. What's the balance there? And Brian, maybe we'll start with you. Sure. Yeah. So, I, I mean, obviously, it's going to vary a lot based on an individual organization and what their needs are. Um, I, I would hesitate to ever completely short circuit the as is process because you need to, as Teresa's talked about, really diagnose why things are broken. Mm -hmm. And there may be assumptions that you're making in there um, about what you do, what your customers need, what the needs of the process are that could be uh, wrong if you don't have a, enough of an understanding. But you, there are there's limits to how deep you necessarily need to go on current state, particularly mm -hmm. in certain areas if they are uh, pretty vanilla for you as an organization. You know, if your finance financial processes are not um, 
anything really unique to you as a business. You need to have a baseline understanding of what they are in current state, but you don't need to uh, build out a massive amount of detail on those and, and you'll want to mm -hmm. move towards uh, kind of where you're trying to get to. But the key thing to understand here and sorry, Teresa stealing your thunder on this one, but it's going to be um, helping to adapt to the change because knowing what mm -hmm. you're doing in the current state uh, even if you know where you want to get to, if you don't know what it's going to take to move your people to those future state processes, yeah. um, you're going to have a challenge there. Yeah. So in my opinion, um, I think if you spend more time understanding the pain points, the issues and the requirements of that as is current state is a better use of time than digging down to a detailed level that it really won't matter, right? We understand these. this process is broken. That's why you call us. That's why you call third stage to help and understand where those opportunities are. The process is, is the process. This is how it's operating. But why is it not operating to the way it was designed? To me, that's more value added work um, to give to the client as well as to collaborate with the vendor to show them how this new system um, or this new model is going to alleviate their issues. Excellent. And I think that that is so important and it really kind of ties nicely to Andy's question over here is whose responsibility is it to bring up the need for OCM, organizational change management, and when? Question mark. So let's start with you, Brian, just to like mix it up a little bit. Mix it up. <laughs> let's see what you have to say, Brian. I'm only joking. <laughs> I think it's uh, it's anyone's responsibility who can bring it up. The question is going to be who can really make it happen and bring about the mm -hmm. practices of OCM uh, that are needed on a project. So, uh, but I, I think that's really really important. You may be in an organization where people don't really think of uh, OCM as a critical need, and uh, mm -hmm. if you're someone who does understand that need, it's good to use whatever levers of influence you have to try to to try to draw that out and to make an awareness within the organization uh, of the need for that. But you, you really need to be starting with OCM from, from the beginning, much as you're starting looking at your processes at the beginning before you figure out your software, before you figure out um, directionally exactly where you're going to go, you need to be thinking about uh, the activities of how you're going to support the change, how you're going to bring in the right people who are going to need to be a part of that and, uh, and do that early and, and work to, Work to introduce it, and you know, for some organizations, they they may not adopt a full OCM program, and if that's not what they're comfortable with, and they can't get their leaders by, and you still want to take on whatever activities you can as as part of that. Excellent, Teresa. To add to that, <sighs> yes. How much time do we have? Yeah, I was just about to say you, we're gonna have to put a time. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> I know. Uh, so honestly, that was a great answer as well. You like anyone should be able to bring that up but do they is the question a lot of times when i'm on projects uh that have to deal with ocm i always ask the question you know why hasn't the change worked for you before tell me why and usually when i ask that question everyone starts giving me reasons why it doesn't or why it hasn't stuck and then they understand the need for what we do so if you've tried this five times and it never gained traction. Why is that? What happened? Who is involved? A lot of crickets go on, you know, but it starts to help them generate some thought about, okay, maybe the approach we took from the last five times, it needs to be addressed, 
right? Mm -hmm. And then once those conversations start, it really becomes a, a piece of the conversation for the leadership to say, yep, okay, we didn't do this before. Usually it starts from the ground up, in my opinion, or mid-level managers, and then it kind of bubbles up to senior leadership. Because if, if you've tried an initiative five times, what's going to be the differentiator for the six? Because we can't keep continually doing this. You lose buy-in, you lose support, you create more fear in the organization, et cetera, et cetera. So in my opinion, anybody should bring it up as Brian said. But then the next step is let's talk about why it hasn't worked before. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I see, I think understanding that activation point, you know, who is the, the decision maker, the creator of change, and do they understand, you know, the importance of it? And a lot of times that can be kind of a coach up scenario, Absolutely. you know, helping see the value. Um, and then that kind of brings me to my next question over here is when we're talking about BPM or, or operational excellence, should that be from the top down or from the bottom up as far as effort? Maybe we'll go to you first, Brian, on oh. that one. Oh, well, no, oh, never no, I'm only no, 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 go ahead. Go ahead. No, I mean, I can talk about this all day. Go ahead, Brian. Uh, yeah, well, I like with every answer, I'll always uh, hedge on the fact it really depends on the organization and kind of mm -hmm. what the needs are and how they operate culturally. But um, it, it's important. Let's let's say this. If, if, if you're doing something from the top down and driving that effort, it's got to really uh, engage the people from the bottom up in a way that is um, not just paying lip service to to the role on that, but recognizing that they're the people that are uh, making things happen uh, and that they're the ones who understand the reality of what's being experienced on, on a day-to-day -day basis. And often, if asked the right questions, it's people on the bottom who can give you, um, I shouldn't use the bottom in, in a way, the people people who are actually performing the day-to-day -day who sure. can, yeah, who can, who can, um, who can come to the right answers and sometimes just need to facilitate the right questions and bring the right people along. Uh, from the flip side, though, from the bottom up, sometimes there may not be an organizational uh, push uh, towards this type of improvement. And it doesn't mean it can't start from uh, from the bottom up to really um, implement some small wins, do something at uh, even as much as I talked about being cross-functional before. If you can start something at a mm -hmm. department level and show some wins that way and show a, mm -hmm. a discipline that you want to roll out within the organization, that can build some momentum to start to grow things uh, at, a, at a broader level. Yep. So just to add on that, um, if you do start from that perspective, senior leadership, CEO, whomever, they like wins, right? They like to mm -hmm. see proof is in the pudding. Um, but if you're asking how can this be supported um, across an organization, it's definitely going to have to start from the top because they're the one that that's controlling capital and the activity of a business, right? Mm -hmm. And again, how does it align to my strategic plan? How does this work across the organization so I can turn around and show an ROI on the efforts that we've actually been able to achieve and the results we've been able to achieve? So, you know, when you when you have work like this, again, and if you're able to reach a, a result, a positive uh, trend or meeting a goal, that, that will get a lot of attention for you, mm -hmm. right? So you have to show the benefit, the value add, and the payback. Once you do, the support has to come from the top to get that capital released and the support from all of the different levels of the organization. And to build on that, 
Where is the user adoption strategy built within a digital transformation? And how do you ensure that that's something that is an investment within the overall process? Because obviously we can all have systems, but if nobody uses them or doesn't understand how to use them, then they're probably not that effective, I would assume. Um, oh, 100%. <laughs> so do, who wants to elaborate on that? I need a buzzer for you guys. Like I know, I know. I can, I can take it, or you know, I can add on to Brian. I think we, we definitely have, you know, the same thought here. So the question is, why do we have a low user adoption rate? The question is, why? Why? Why did? What did we not do to help support the team? And that goes back to understanding their pains from the very beginning of that current state. What's why, why, what are your issues? What are your requirements? What do you need? What is your pain? And right then and there, you do two things. You capture your, your performance or your current state, but you also create that buy-in, that willingness to own and partner with you to help make these changes impactful when you start building that buy-in, the trust, the cooperation, the ownership, right? The accountability, I'm giving that to you. So now you find it as a worthwhile activity to actually use the system. But if I come to you and say, hey, we did all this work, letting you know uh, next week we're going to turn the switch on and you're going to use this. You're like, what are you talking about? Why, why am I going to use this? What does this benefit me? How, how, did, how does my issue with this uh, get fixed. I don't know what's going on. So in my opinion, you have to go right to the beginning and you have to start the work of not just understanding your, your systems and your, your business ecosystem, your processes, performance, but you have to create the buy-in, the trust, the accountability and ownership from the people who are going to use it. And then you use KPIs to measure. And yeah, thorough, very thorough answer, Teresa. I know you, you do a great job of bringing this in with our clients, of tying all of these pieces together. And I, the only thing I want to add to this is just uh, how it ties into a common misconception of what we deal with up front a lot from our clients, which is thinking that they hear, well, people don't like the current systems. They're going to be excited for this no matter what happens. And just uh, we, we've got we're not going to have any resistance because people are so ready to get rid of this piece of junk that we're using right now. And uh, I mean, it's a good thing that people are ready for that, but they're mm -hmm. all those things Teresa was talking about. Those are, are things you need to do to connect it to people. Even people who are ready to get rid of the system that they're on now, that doesn't automatically mean they're going to be happy for whatever it is you're changing to without being really um, complete about how you're looking at that change. Man, that's that's another can of another topic for another day. I'm gonna I'll, I'm gonna tell you, like you know, when you have business processes that are broken, um, but you're somehow able to keep your head above water, that's because people have put a lot of time, energy, and resources into creating workarounds, right? Mm -hmm. So if I don't ask you these questions, if I don't establish a connection and relationship with you, if I can't gain your trust in what I'm doing. Uh, I'm not going to be able to break that person who spent the last 10 years refining these workarounds because guess what? I tried the system you sh you you gave to us. It didn't work. You know, maybe I got bit a couple times because I tried and I couldn't do it. So now I have this refined model that I'm using to get everything I need. So why mm -hmm. am I giving that up? Those are the kind of, of, 
of pitfalls that people experience when you don't start soon enough or the activities aren't involving the people who are actually using the system. Absolutely. I think that that's oh, so important in just really evaluating that human aspect. I'm curious if you could give us your feedback. It seems as though from a business process management standpoint, it can be difficult to have the awareness to be able to evaluate your own business's systems. Is, is that something that you would recommend reaching out to a third party or a specialist in that sort of scenario, just so that you can kind of garner all the insights and optimization opportunities? Yes. Um, Okay. Oh, sorry. I was like, yeah, let's talk about it. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, that was, I should have waited till you were finished, but I'm speaking. No, out. no, no, no. I'm glad that you're, you're thinking about talking. the buzzer that. Uh... <laughs> yes. I'm going to buzz you. Yeah. That's Jeff, we should get a buzzer and do like family feud style answer. Yeah. That would be fun. Oh my yeah, gosh. I sorry, made a third stage Jeopardy. So next time, <laughs> folks, we're going for it. Um, uh, go ahead, Brian. Well, I'll let you. Yeah. Well, let's start with you, Brian. Just obviously, this is kind of your wheelhouse. This is what you do for businesses, your specialty. And I just mm -hmm. am I'm wondering from that perspective, do you ever kind of get that laser focus on like this part of the business is broken, but it's actually not that part of the business is broken. It's the, the piece that comes before it. And how do you address that? Yeah. And I mean, I'll give maybe the surprising part of the answer up, for, up front, which is it doesn't necessarily need to be someone independent, but it does need to be someone who has uh, the understanding and the discipline to be able to look really across your business as a whole. So worked with organizations who do have robust process management capabilities and teams and people um, that, that that was the role I came from before I came to third stage, for example, people who uh, ha have um, a team and a discipline and a process towards doing this throughout the organization. And if you have that established and it's been effective and it's proven results and you, you can do that in the organization, that may be a part of the journey you can do yourself. But if you don't have that as a strong organizational discipline, you're going to need some help to build that out. And building that out might mean helping to develop a, a function like that within your team. Um, but it, it's something that it, it often can work best by having uh, a team of people who ha are skilled and have experience at doing this to help you through that journey and to um, hopefully not do this just as a one-time thing either, but to really build out an organizational practice towards looking at and maintaining your processes and not just looking at them at the time that you're rolling out a new technology. Anything to add to that, Teresa? You know the answer is yes, I do. <laughs> so for me, um, I think having another set of eyes is helpful mm -hmm. to look at a process. Um, many times when I walk into an organization and I start I start partnering with people, um, you have the the individuals that say, "Yeah, we tried this before, it didn't work," or you have the ones that have put a lot of time and an effort into a process or into something, then they don't, they hold the, the cards very close to their chest. So when I say, Hey, you know what? I understand you. I hear you. You're the expert at what you do. I'm the expert at what I do. Let's partner and figure it out because I'll ask questions that maybe they, they already, you know, they know about, but they're not thinking about because they see it every day. They experience it every day and maybe they're used to that pain and it's not really an issue until someone mm -hmm. um, 
for instance, like myself from third stage comes in and asks that question and asks some probe, you know, some additional probing and like, oh my gosh, you're right. Maybe it is the process before me. Maybe I have just become, you know, uh, settled on the fact that I had to work around and it's really not a problem anymore, but you know what? It is a problem. So let's go investigate that. Sometimes when you're so close to a process or you have a lot of time um, invested into something, it's kind of hard to see, you know, the forest through the trees is if, if that's, I forgot if that's the right way to say it. But again, if, if you have that extra set of eyes that, you know, agnostic set, like, hey, I'm just asking questions, things come out of that conversation that can really help an organization identify what those other uh, burning opportunities would be. You don't want to waste time. You know, I'm a, I'm a big, I'm a big uh, opponent of wasting time. I don't want to do it. So let's figure it out. Yeah. I think it's kind of like that house metaphor that if you follow um, a lot of our podcasts or conversations I have with Eric, you know, could I put a roof on a house? I mean, probably, but do, is that my everyday job? Yeah. You know, uh, yeah. So just in, investing in that efficiency and mm -hmm. that expertise i think a lot of times people have this ownership and it almost comes with a level of shame like this is my business right yeah so i would know everything that happens here and just opening up that conversation that vulnerability to say mm -hmm. maybe i should have somebody else come on here and, and take a look at my roof even though it's my house all right thank you Teresa, kyler and brian great conversation really enjoyed having you here and we appreciate your time uh, super helpful stuff as it relates to process improvement and business value and just how it fits into digital transformation. We're going to take that conversation one step further. We're going to bring another guest onto the show right after a break. His name is Wayne Holtham. You may have seen him or heard him on the show before. He's our executive vice president of Third Stage Consulting in Asia Pacific. And he's going to be on talking about business process mining and providing an overview of what it is, how it can be used in digital transformation and process improvement initiatives. And if you don't know what business process mining is and you're interested in business process improvement, I highly encourage you to check out this interview. It's a great discussion. Uh, it's a great concept to, to learn about. So we're going to have Wayne on the show. But first, we'll take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology-agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 84. My name is Eric Kimberling. You can find new episodes of the show every Wednesday on Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Twitter. You can also find new episodes on all the audio podcast platforms that are out there. We've so far been talking quite a bit about business process improvement. In our last segment, we had Kyler, Teresa, and Brian here to talk about process improvement, how it can increase business value. 
But we want to go a step further and talk about what are some of the tools we can use to enable better process improvement and continuous improvement as well. So this is a great concept. This whole concept of business process mining that we're going to get into here in this segment is a great concept for analyzing your current state, looking at your legacy systems, your current processes, understanding what's really happening behind the scenes or what's really happening at the front lines and at the system level in terms of business process lead times, cycle times, variations in your processes. Super cool technology. I'm, I'm a big fan of it and something we use actually at third stage. We use business process mining as a tool in our consulting services that we provide to our clients. And it's just a great way to augment qualitative analysis and qualitative process improvement sorts of stuff that, that Brian, Teresa, and Kyler talked about. It's a good way to augment that with actual quantitative data and analytical tools on the technology side that can help you analyze business processes and figure out what's really happening and what do we need to improve and um, you know understanding those exceptions and all those workarounds and those bottlenecks and things that can really break down during any sort of process or workflow within an organization. So rather than me trying to explain what it is, we thought we'd have Wayne Holtham on the show to give his presentation on an intro, basically, to business process mining. He'll give some good visual examples. So if you're if you're not watching this, if you're listening to this on an audio pack, podcast platform, I encourage you to check out the video as well because he is going to show some visuals of what the outputs look like and how that visualization and that quantification of business processes can be used as an analytical framework. So with all that being said, Wayne, welcome to the show. We'll turn it over to you. Good morning, good afternoon, and good night wherever you are. Uh, for down where I am, it's uh, it's good morning. So um, so I'll, I'll share my screen because I've actually got a bit of um, a couple of slides uh, that will actually introduce and we'll talk about uh, process mining and and uh, yes, you did right, uh, Kylie. You know, process mapping is definitely uh, one of the areas that um, that we'll discuss. So I'll just share my screen. Hopefully, everyone can see that. So process mining. Um, it's, it's one of those terminologies that we always come up with new terminology and how we actually um, do things. But <clears throat> it's important to, um, to, to think that process mining is, is probably, uh, we have now the ability to be able to see things we couldn't see before. And just to give you a bit of a feel, uh, I think I, uh, and uh, hopefully you don't feel I'm too old, but um, you know, it's about 45 years since I commenced work. And so in that time, um, you, you, you learn and pick up a few things. and processes uh, have always been one of those, uh, I suppose, challenges that people have of, you know, when we start something, we do something, we have a routine, we have a process, we, we go about the way we do something the same way sort of thing. And then we bring someone else into an organization and they come along and they have their own set of views and we end up with a whole lot of processes that we hope are the consistent or the way that we want them done. So, um, so what we find is that over time, um, those processes can be different. You know, the way people do things, we change roles. Um, and as we've gone into the world of digital enablement, we find that that's becoming more and more of a challenge for us because where we could cope with the fact that people could do processes a certain way and, and we could accommodate that and when they went on leave or holidays or left the organization, someone would come in and pick it up and we'd do a different way, but we'd still get the, the service delivered or what we were looking to achieve. Um, as, as we work through, you know, um, now with enterprise um, technologies, we have the thing where process mining is becoming 
well, how, how do we how do we understand what processes we're all doing? Do we all do it the same? Uh, does that cause inefficiencies? How do we get consistency? And so, um, in my in my past life, as I mentioned many many years ago, back in the late nineties, there was a, a process that came out where we talked about process reengineering. So we'd actually look at organisations, we would unpack what they do, and we would actually then try and align the processes. Um, it worked well for smaller organizations, but when we talk about big organizations, global organizations, very difficult because you know, there's a lot of factors that go into it, you know, just even the, the fact that there's a huge number of people involved in the process. And so process mining is something that technology has given us. In my mind, it's the crystal ball. It's that thing that says, all of a sudden, how do we, what are we doing? How can we actually go in and improve? <clears throat> How do we monitor what we're actually doing? So, um, so, so yes, it's, uh, it's, it's a new world. It's, it's, it's a great opportunity. And you can probably tell I'm a bit excited about it because uh, over the last four years, I've been involved in uh, working with organizations and, um, and what I could see back in the late 90s where we were actually uh, re-engineering processes, a lot of the processes were manual and they didn't rely on uh, digital um, platforms to support them. Whereas today, we, we, we truly have embraced digital platforms and we need consistency. We need people to be able to do things the same way. And if we want to automate, we want to do AI, we want to do robotics, that's what it works on. It works on the fact of consistency of process. And if we don't have anything like that, it's very difficult to actually put in automation. So as we walk through today, we'll actually have a bit of a look at um, uh, process discovery. You know, it's one of the things we've many times, um, people will have, organizations will have gone through a discovery of uh, their processes. We'll look at the barriers to process mining because there are distinct barriers um, that, that people have and they aren't the barriers you might think. It's, it's not that it's hard to do and it's not that it's that it's that taking that quantum leap into something that uh, may actually show a reality you don't want to see. So we'll talk about that as well. We'll look at the benefits of process mining and we'll also look at the process performance measurement. And I think that's an important thing because it's not about understanding just what your processes are. It's making sure that they stay the same and operate the same and provide the same level of performance as you design them to be ongoing, evergreen. And so, so to me, that's a very important step for, um, for process uh, effectiveness, uh, which, which supports all of your digital um, um, platforms and how they actually operate. So this is third stage has, uh, has had this around for a while. And if you've looked at many of the um, LinkedIn posts, you might have seen uh, a process, um, process review, a process of how you go about um, uh, understanding your processes and improving processes to support a digital strategy or a roadmap or a, or a, um, or a change program. So, so you know, these, <clears throat> these are the basic steps that we would go through. But when we start looking at what is available as tools to be able to help us do that, current state is always one of those areas that we go, well, that's, we need to probably understand current state before we move forward to actually implement future state because that guides what change we might need, um, how much effort we have to actually put in, what type of uh, interfaces or what type of architecture we might need in our uh, digital uh, platform. And so, so you know, that, they're an important step to be able to get us to the future state. But I suppose the one thing we're looking at is when we are triggered by a, a digital platform or we are putting in a new platform, we find that 
um, we need to understand why are we doing it? What are the goals? What are, what's our objectives? What are, what are our, how are we going to operate differently in a new world? So, um, so that, that's, that's obviously a first step. And then we get into the current, um, evaluate our current processes. It's, you know, identify what our future should be. You know, are we going to get any benefits out of it? What are the metrics that we're actually going to measure those processes? And in the past, it would have been hard to be able to do those things. It's hard to actually measure process performance because how do we measure it? Whereas a lot of process mining tools allow us to be able to um, keep a look on, keep an eye out, keep a view on how, how things are performing. Um, and then obviously identify the change impacts. If we have thousands of ways, and, and in some organisations that we've worked with, there are literally thousands of variants to the way organisations do processes. And, uh, and that's usually because over time they've grown and people have done different things. Um, technology may be harder to use, they've created workarounds. And so you get all of these different variants. And then when we come in and we say, we want to put in best practice. Best practice is about saying, well, we want consistency. We want it done a certain way. We want a certain a level of alignment across the organization. And so that's, that's the, probably the, the challenge that most organizations have. And that's where a lot of failures come from, is that fact that you know, they don't understand that they actually do their process or the way they go about their business differently across geographies, across different divisions, across all areas of the business. And so... One of the big steps is to be able to bring that back, align that, get that back so that it's as close as it can. Then best practice has a chance. Then automation has an opportunity. Then robotics has an opportunity. And so when we start looking at where process mining comes in, we start looking at here's where process mining can actually help us. You know, evaluating our current processes. For me, I call that what is because it's what is actually happening. And I'll go into what I mean by that, but, but that term what is, is something that really is special to me in the sense that, you know, I've sat in lots of sessions where we do current state and you'll talk to a group of people and then you bring in a different group of people and they'll have a different version of how they do things. So what is really current state? What do we really do? Whereas when we look at the process mining tools that um, we have today, we get the ability to be able to see what is. And that's where that's your base. That's your that's your ability to be able to work on that. And then we can start to say, well, what should those new processes be look like? How how can we actually clean out some of those things that are causing us disruption, variance, need to change? And it may be that our master data is not right. It may be that we have to have a workaround for certain things. How do we get that so that that's not an issue for us? And that's where those benefits start coming. So how do we get streamlined processes? They are the sorts of things that. Um, that we're looking to achieve. Um, and then, then obviously it's about process ownership and metrics. So how do we keep them like that? You know, if they, are, if they aren't working for us, how do we get it so that we actually are going to focus on those and improve those? And so these are all of the things where the process mining tools allow us to be able to, um, to, to get that insight to be able to work on it. But I suppose let's go back to the first step of define the business goals. How do we want to operate? that sets the scene for many of the steps that follow after.
But you can see here the old way that we would do it. And so many, many post-it notes, many days, many weeks. And a lot of consulting firms actually build a career on this because they know that um, this isn't a simple process. And when you've got to get a lot of people involved, you have to get a clear understanding. And, and you, you need to probably have a bit of skill when it comes to the facilitation piece of this to be able to really challenge, is that really how it happens or is that how it happens in this division? And so what you end up with is that, that fiction or that best guess. And, and that's always a challenge because if we're moving forward and we're going to put in a digital platform and we might spend millions and millions of dollars putting in what we call best practice, yet we operate in a way that isn't really clear or we have many ways of doing it, it makes it difficult for us to actually go and, and, and get that, um, that digital platform to actually work as efficiently and as effective and uh, for us, so, so that's the challenge. Whereas if we look on the right-hand side, here's what process mining does, and, and the tool that we use is, uh, that we, and I'm not saying it's, it's the only tool to use, there are a number of tools out there, Signavio is a tool, um, spoke to a client just recently, and there's a Microsoft-based tool that's out there for some of the Microsoft products. But the one, uh, Salonis actually does all of the major uh, ERP uh, digital platforms. So, so first tier, second tier, there's plugins for all of those. Um, so, so it probably covers the widest range and, and it's recognized in the marketplace as being probably the leader when it comes to process mining tools. So, so, um, so, so that's, that's, I suppose, a bit of background on the tool set. But let's, let's not focus on the tool. Let's, let's focus on what it actually gives us. And if we look on the right-hand side there, we can see a few squiggly lines. That is actually a process. And that's a process that actually um, was a standard process. In this case, it's actually in an asset management space. And so we have work orders and uh, you know we complete that work and then we close it out. And so that's what this, this is representing for us. But you can see here that in this, we have 87 different variants of that one process. So that means that in our organization, we do it 87 times different. And so you go, well, it's very hard for us to be able to say, well, if we're implementing best practice, which one of those 87 is our best practice? And so the, the, the aim is to be able to say, well, what's causing us to have to do these things or have these variants or have these differences in what we do? And so this is, this is what gives us that. And that's why I talk about it being a crystal ball. This is the, the view that we actually have and we can drill down and continue and look at every one of those 87 uh, different variants. In this case here, I think we're looking at the top seven there. Um, and that gives us a view of what we can actually change, where our differences are, why they're actually happening. And the, the lower screen actually starts to give us a view of um, drilling down. So we could actually pick at any one of those points and find out how often it happens, when it happens, what's the, what's the circumstance it happens under. And, and so, so all of a sudden, you actually have really good fact, really clear detail. And, and for some people, that's quite challenging because in the past, you know, they, they built a career on hiding behind their process and they were the only one who could do that. And when, when they went on leave or they went out of the system, all of a sudden the business felt it. And so for them, they really were needed. You know, it's that, it's that thing of, you know, you can't lose me out of the organization because you wouldn't survive as such. And so, you know, that's, that, that are some of those things that cause the challenges we have when we're implementing new digital platforms is the fact that 
we have humans and humans like to do things their own way. Um, but if we want to embrace technology, we want to improve, we want to actually get um, automation, rely on artificial intelligence, do all of those sorts of things, we need to be able to start to understand what are those differences? Why do we have them? Are they of any value? Do we need them? And what is probably the most simplest way to be able to do things? And when we have organisations that have been around for a long time, you can imagine how much legacy how much background, and, and it's interesting uh, when you go into organizations, sometimes you find a process and you say, why do you do that process? Well, I don't know, I was taught to do it when I came in and that was 20 years ago, and we, we still do it. But we've got another process that we, we were told we had to do, so we do that one and that one. And so we end up with this lot of duplication, and, and these are things that, um, that we, wanna, we wanna remove out of our organizations. We wanna be able to get what's the smoothest, simplest, frictionless way of doing a process. And so it's important for us to be able to identify what is happening. And that's why I talk about what is. It's the factual, it's the detailed. All right. Thank you, Wayne. Great presentation so far. We've got more to go and I know you have more to cover with us, but first we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting, and we recently hosted our Digital Stratosphere 2022 virtual event. It's three days of packed content related to digital transformation best practices, about 16 or 18 different workshops and different speakers that are presenting on different topics, everything you need to know about transformation. The, the bad news is you, if you miss that event, the event's over. The, the live event already happened. But the good news, if you've missed it, or even if you did attend it and you want to see replays or you want to catch the sessions you missed, you can do that now by going to stratosphere2022.com. Go to stratosphere2022.com, register. All you have to do is put in your, your name and email address, uh, just a few fields. You get immediate access to all the recordings and the recordings cover everything from digital strategy, um, software selection, organizational change, process improvement, architecture, data migration, cloud, trends in the industry, um, how to avoid failure, some of the legal aspects to think about, contractual aspects to think about as it relates to your transformation. All that is stuff that you'll get by registering for Stratosphere 2022 replay. And again, go to stratosphere2022.com and you can listen to all the replays of all the workshops that you might have missed at the event. So hope you check it out and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 84. My name is Eric Kimberling, and I'm here with Wayne Holtham, who's giving a presentation on business process mining and how it fits into business process improvement and how it can be used to help enable better business process improvement. So let's cut back to the conversation and then continue the presentation with Wayne. Barriers. <laughs> and this is something you, you, you know, most people go, oh, what's the barrier to it? Is it hard to put in? Is it difficult? Well, essentially what it is, it's a, it's a connection into your data set because every time you actually transact in your digital platform, you leave a fingerprint or a footprint, whichever, whichever you want to call it. And that, that leaves us a, a, trail of, a trail of breadcrumbs to be able to put together those maps you would have seen there earlier where we're saying, well, this is what actually happened at this stage and this took this diversion and this took this. So we can actually follow that without having to sit in a room and ask people, 
what do you do? How do you do it? Why do you do it? Because all of a sudden we have it available to us. The next piece for us is to be able to say, well, okay, now we know that, why do we do it? Does it add any value? Different discussion, but it's one of those things you've got to get to that point. And the big challenge is, is when you start looking at whole business, enterprise, we need to involve our senior leaders. And many of our senior leaders really don't understand, and I'm not being disrespectful here because it's not their role to probably understand every intricate detail. But with that comes a blind side. It becomes a, a blind spot of an organization. And so, you know, they are reported certain metrics to say, here's how we are performing. But no one ever uh, puts a metric up that says, we are red in every quadrant. Uh, we perform really, really badly. It's only until really it gets to that point where you, there's no other choice. You can't choose any other color but red um, that you do it. And so getting senior leaders to actually see the value of consistent process, defining processes, you know, uh, leveraging the, uh, an efficiency program instead of managing inefficiency. It's, it's a challenge. And so when, 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 the, you know, when you're working with organizations, you know, there's often this, this hesitation to actually adopt what I call the new world of digital, um, digital process mapping. Um, because, because people go, well, you know, I'm not sure what it's going to show me and I'm not sure I trust what it says. But when you actually get in and you actually start looking at it, we, we worked with a client just recently where, you know, they wanted a, a design, a process design. And uh, what they got is they got a learning of, of how many different ways they do things. They actually learned that there were so many different ways and workarounds, they actually never used their ERP to its potential. I think it's about two or 3% of uh, people actually use the ERP. They reported into it. They didn't actually transact in it. And so these are all learnings to say, well, if I'm gonna spend millions of dollars putting in a new ERP platform or a new technology platform, I want people to actually use it, not not have it there and just, you know, how can we trust the information that's in it? So so senior leaders, you know, it's it's a key thing for them to be able to embrace the ability to say, well, let's look at what we do. Let's 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 uh, not think that we are perfect. Let's think, let's understand, let's discover, let's look at what is possible. An effective process involvement is only effective when it's improved end to end. Many times we'll have organisations, I've worked with different divisions of organisations and they come in and they go, you know, I want you to uh, look at our processes and we want to we want to map them and we want to fix them. And you go, well, you have an input area or you have an area where another division feeds you uh, information, service, whatever, and you, you have an output. So your piece you could improve, but how do you know that if you're actually getting information or, or getting uh, materials or, or, or you're part of a process that is an end-to-end -end process, you just improving your piece doesn't actually add value to the whole organization. And so you need to take a step back and not have that silo uh, view of processes. It's, it's one of those things that uh, organizations, we've divisionalized organizations over time, but we do need to take that step up and say, well, many of the divisions need one to support the other to deliver the other. And that's where this end-to-end -end, um, um, concept, or and it's not even a concept, it's actually a reality, uh, has come in. A real barrier that you find is when you actually work with organizations and often you come in at, the, at a lower level in the organization and they see you know, the, the potential of, um, 
uh, of process mining or improving processes. But the challenge they have is that many of the people that they have to convince to actually get to do process mining or, or really good process um, improvement have, have a, are tied to those processes. They don't want to be reflected in a negative way. And so by looking in at that data and seeing all of those breadcrumbs and all of those differences of the way they do things, they feel it judges them. And, and it's not about judging, it's about saying, well, now we actually have a basis. We have a baseline to actually work from, not a guess, not a, not a, you know, not a, not someone's interpretation, or they think they do it that way, or they'd like to do it that way, but they don't really want to tell you that that's not done that way. Um, so, so, so that's one of the areas. It's very difficult to be able to break that little barrier, and then end-to-end -end process ownership and measurement. It's not understood. So many times we have, um, you know, and and this just as a recent. Um, uh, experience. We had a large consulting firm came in and they talked about putting in end-to-end -end processes to an organization that was very silo-based. It had a lot of different divisions. It was vertically integrated at 10,000 employees, so it's a reasonable-sized business. And, um, and so that, their level of process ownership was that they had their little piece of the process that they felt they owned, but they, you know, and they were responsible for. But did it enhance any other area of the business? Could it be measured? No, it couldn't be. And so that, that's one of the challenges that organizations face is that when they look at processes, they look at processes on a divisional base. And so you need to look at process ownership at a level where people can actually make the difference and view what performance needs to be. And you can also monitor how that is continually operating. So you've actually got the feedback saying that this process is still working as efficient as it can be. And when it's not, we're mature enough to actually say, what's going wrong? How do we fix that? And we pick it up and learn it quickly before we actually let it get out of hand. We create a workaround and we add something else in and we get more complexity. And then soon as soon as we've actually started complexity, it continues to grow because all of a sudden we create that domino effect. We fix one thing, we break another. Whereas when we look at end to end, we can make sure the whole, the whole uh, line of the process is actually seamless. Benefits. And, and for me, there's, there's a lot more that, uh, benefits on than, than I actually have listed on here. And I, at the end of this session, I'll, I'll finish early and we'll ask some questions about what people think about um, whether they've seen benefits or whether they could see some of the benefits. So I won't wrap it on the whole time. So apologies for, uh, for just running through the presentation, but it, but it gives us a basis to work from. So, you know, accurate what is process flows. They act as that baseline, as I mentioned. It's something that you can't underestimate knowing what really is happening because only then can you actually start to address and rectify and align because once you get people aligned and understand you I don't even know why we do that or that doesn't even make sense to do some of those things then that alignment piece is a critical part and it supports your change and change becomes a much easier process when people go I don't even I'm not fighting this change because it makes sense for us to do that um, because I can see the value that it actually creates clarity how many different ways of a process 
is carried out. And so when we can actually start to see why all those workarounds are in there or what is causing those workarounds. So it's not always people doing it wrong. It's they have to in some cases because the business actually hasn't got maturity in some areas of their business. You know, they may have poor data that's actually causing some of this. Um, or they may have never been trained to actually use a system so they actually find it easy to slip out into a spreadsheet and do some work and then, then push those numbers back in. Which which challenges do we actually have a source of truth anymore um, is probably the question that you raises there. And then we look at process effectiveness. If we actually measure the performance of a process, then that becomes evergreen. If we ever do anything else in the way of putting in a new digital platform, a new change to the business, we have a really clear understanding of how our business operates. Whereas today, many businesses don't have that. And so they embark on, a, 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 it's like a mystery tour of how to actually put in a digital platform where I don't even know what processes we do. I don't know what the impact's gonna be by putting in best practice. And so at the end of our delivery, we find that we've got these gaps. All of a sudden, it doesn't do it the way we used to do it because we had 10 spreadsheets that we relied on to actually give us this information. And so, so you can see why there's so many uh, challenges and risks that come with digital transformation. And this is one of those ways of it's a, a risk buster uh, in the sense that um, you actually get the ability to see what you're actually doing. Um, adopt best practice. And, and best practice is one of those things that, you know, there is world's best practice and I hear that so often. Um, but, but what's best practice for your organization to maintain a competitive advantage? And I think that's the difference. If we look at a lot of the disruptors that have come out in recent times, your Ubers, your, your all of those sorts of uh, organizations that come in and have actually built a market where there was uh, already an existing market and they've actually muscled their way in and created a new market. And so it takes a lot to do that. But why have they done that? It's because they actually have a very efficient process that allows them to actually come in and be very efficient at what they do. Whereas what, what's happened in the past, a lot of these other uh, providers in particular industries have found that you know their processes get them by, they service a delivery, but they aren't as efficient as they could be. They're not the cheapest way of doing things. And, and they, they are not always deliver the best way. And so, so the ability to be able to adopt best practice that satisfies your competitive advantage is really, really important ability to align technology. Um, you know, it's, it's, we, we, we look to technology as, you know, it's the savior, it's gonna have all the processes in it, it's gonna have best practice. Well, it has technology practice. That doesn't mean it's the best practice. And if we look at an enterprise platform, we sell that across many industries, many organizations. So are we all gonna be the same best practice? So how do we get our business to align the processes that we have with the technology, the technology will have a way of working. And so that's what they determine as best practice. And so how do we get that? And so if we can actually see what processes we do, where the touch point is with technology, all of a sudden we remove that air gap, that, that, that um, area where we are, we're not sure of, or we have misalignment, which creates many of those reasons why we have workarounds. Process performance measurement. To me, this is the holy grail, to be able to actually look at and monitor your processes. And you can see here, here's a couple of um, images where you can actually put a dashboard in. So in this case here, it's throughput time. So how long does it take to actually do the process? You know, um, if we've got different steps within a process, 
uh, we can actually break that process down to actually see um, whether one particular step is holding up the overall. Um, what's the closest way to get our our best variant as such or our best process? So it might not be that it's totally straight line with the process. There might be a couple of little areas where we deviate, but that's actually our best process to satisfy our competitive advantage. And so having this presented to us and our managers and our senior managers, all of a sudden gives them the ability to be able to make sure that what they are looking to do or how they're actually working uh, in an organization, what the objectives are, are they being met? Are we doing it the smoothest, simplest way? And focusing on those particular areas of the business that aren't so that you can actually quickly work on those, then let everything get out of control or create a fix here, which forces a fix over here, and we have those sort of problems. And so digital transformations are often larger uh, than required because, you know, often we don't understand what we're actually venturing into. And so we find that we get halfway along the journey and we didn't estimate or didn't assume that that would be a problem for us. And so then we've got to go off and fix that. And so that's where we get this time blowout and this cost blowout. And having that clear understanding of the what is reduces your transformation requirement. So for every improvement or upgrade that you might do in the future, as I mentioned, it allows you to be able to um, you know, to be able to address that because you actually understand what you're doing. And so again, it's even cheaper when you actually engage a solution integrator. They come in and they go, well, ah, that's the process you want us to work to. We can build a solution that will actually support that. So the cost becomes cheaper. The efficiency, the outcomes become cheaper. And so there's a whole lot of benefits to actually understanding what is uh, and then working through that process to actually deliver a better outcome. Okay, thank you, Wayne. Great conversation, great presentation. Thank you for being here. That's a, a really interesting tool and it fits in nicely with what the previous speakers had talked about as it relates to business process improvement uh, earlier in this show. So stick around. We're going to shift gears a little bit right after a quick break. We're going to kind of evolve here from business process, process mining into system architecture and design, which is an enabler, a key enabler of business process improvement. Um, and so it's, it's uh, somewhat of a natural segue here, but it's getting a little more technical. We're going to talk about system architecture and what it means, um, how you design your technology and how you tie together different technologies. So we're going to have Mitch Otteson and Kyler from the show, uh, or from Third Stage Consulting on the show to talk about system architecture and design. We're going to take a quick break first, and we'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 84. My name is Eric Kimberling. 
and you can find new episodes every Wednesday on all the audio podcast platforms, whether it's Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever you listen, be sure to check it out there. Um, You can also watch it on YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Um, So be sure to check out new episodes on all of those different platforms and channels uh, every Wednesday. So excited for our next discussion here, our next thread. We're going to get into system architecture and design, which is a super interesting concept, especially as organizations become more complex, deploy different types of technologies, a variety of different technologies, system architecture and design becomes even more important, particularly in situations where organizations are relying on more of a best-of-breed model, multiple technologies, multiple point solutions to handle different parts of their business, different locations, whatever the case may be. And in those cases where organizations are using multiple technologies, which most organizations are, for better or for worse, they're using multiple technologies to manage their businesses, how do you tie that out all all together? How do you ensure that you have a single source of truth within the data? How do you ensure that the data is flowing back and forth? And how do you ensure that the systems are talking well to one another? And perhaps even more importantly, how do you ensure that you have a well-thought-out blueprint and architecture for what your system landscape is going to look like in the future so that you can tie this all together? So with us to discuss that is Kyler and Mitch from the Third Stage team. Um, Kyler had a chance recently to interview uh, Mitch to talk about this exact topic. So we're going to turn it over to you, Kyler, to talk about uh, this whole concept of system architecture and design with Mitch. Good evening, depending on where you're joining us from today. Um, We are excited to welcome you to our Fun Friday live stream. And today we are going to talk about the components of system architecture, which has become more of a really mainstream trend within the digital transformation industry and something that's often overlooked in project planning and execution. Um, So today joining me, I'm very excited to welcome um, Mitch Addison, who is a a consultant on our side, a senior consultant who has um, an expert background in system architecture and how um, all integrations and data talks to each other. So we're going to have an informal conversation around that today. Few logistics, we can see all of your chat messages um, in whatever platform you're joining. So feel free to pop questions or engage in the comments as well. Um, And we will ask Mitch those questions live today. Um, To test that feature, we'd love to hear where you're joining us from. We do have a huge global audience here at Third Stage, so we'd love to hear where you're joining and tuning in from today. So with that, um, Mitch, do you want to give us a a quick introduction of what you do here at Third Stage and your background? Sure. I'd be happy to. First, thank you for having me. Very excited to talk to you today. Um, So Mitch, I'm a manager of strategy and transformation, um, and a lot of my background is between uh, business challenges with IT solutions. Um, and a lot of that then pours into the uh, architecture and design and, and just making sure that we're together solutions in a thoughtful way for clients um, after they've chosen a technology or, or as they're going through their selection, we like to evaluate and just make sure that the technology will fit within their existing ecosystem. Um, and that there are no major challenges that we need there oftentimes are. 
And I think system architecture is so unique in the, in the sense that sometimes in a digital transformation project, it may be overlooked on the vendor side or in the sales side. So can right. you kind of explain the importance of having that consideration within the software selection phase? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think an example is the, the best way to do that. Um, there are a lot of uh, solu solutions that we've been looking at with clients. Um, where they, they you know, basically just want to plug in, plug in and hope that their integrations will work. Um, with, with modern APIs, oftentimes a logical um, assumption, but then when you peel back the onion a few layers, you find out that, oh, my, uh, my HR system actually doesn't have an open API to allow the transfer back and forth to a new ERP to, to show the journal entries for uh, payroll or for any of the spend that takes place in my HR system. So that's a very common one that I actually ran into very uh, recently. Um, the customer had, had, I believe it was Paycom, payroll information and plug it into their ERP. So they actually had to replace their entire payroll system to get to the full benefits of what they're looking for. Um, that was outside of them, but that was because of a significant lack in the existing technology that they had that they really didn't even consider. Absolutely. And, and you make such a good point. Just because you have an API doesn't mean it's an effective API, right? Mm -hmm. If the data doesn't transfer over or create actionable insights for you to make the best decision as an organization, that's something that you need to make sure that you, you check. So from um, yeah. a, just a definition perspective, can you explain the difference between system architecture and system design? Yeah. Um, so I think you know, everyone has a little bit of a different example and definition for those terms. They're, they're pretty broad and thrown around a lot, but um, you know, I like to look at it where architecture really is um, a little bit of a higher level um, where it's looking at the systems and, and, and what data lives in what system. And, um, what you need to do to, to get that tool tactical, um, figuring out how that's going to happen. Is it going to be with uh, an API that your team creates or you need to find a third party solution like a Boomi or a MuleSoft to, to put those things together? Um, so that's where the design really is the execution of the architecture is how I like to look at it. Um, and you know, everyone like, takes a little bit of a different approach, but that's the one that, that, that yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I think it's, we use the house example here at third stage quite a bit. It's almost yeah. like the design of your house is is the interior design, right? The architecture is how does the plumbing and the electric and the uh, heating and the HVAC and all of those different things, how do they work together to make sure you have a positive experience and you can drink water in your house? Right. Um, so those types of things. Uh, so just like building a house, it's so important to think through all of those different integrations. Can you talk about how organizations ta tactically, excuse me, <clears throat> as I said in our last live stream, my kids went to school and brought home a cold for the entire family. So it's a family affair. <laughs> so bear with me here on that side. But um, can you kind of explain to us how organizations can tactically understand their system architecture? Because I think that's one of the biggest barriers is actually having that visibility into those integrations or that full system audit. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I always like to start with, with a diagram. And also in, in that diagram, I like to look at um, you know, where do these things live and what, what's, what are the key data fields that are within um, for a specific flow or business use case that I'm trying to solve for? Now, have data and you don't realize that it is actually fed from another system. So when you're replacing an underlying system um, and you don't know where your data is coming in from, you need to make sure you're compatible with the other uh, systems that the data actually resides in. So I like to look at where the inputs are and what the outputs are and where the outputs are used downstream. Absolutely. And and can you, uh, I, I want to ask the audience too, um, and I'll show, we have our global audience joining us today. Um, we've got some uh, European um, and then also some Texas, a few other here in the United States and globally as well. So so welcome, turning back to the audience. But I, I want to ask you and the audience this question. What is the most important data point in an organization? Ooh, that's a good question. Now, you cut out a little bit on my end. Are you putting that out for the, for the, the folks on the chat or do you want me to try and tackle that one? I want, well, I, I want, and I know we're having a few connectivity issues, which is fine. You know, live stream is what it is sometimes, but I asked you and the audience to um, answer and you know me, I always like to mix it up on the questions, um, put it to Eric. He usually says it depends, which I'm sure you'll say too, because that's our consultant answer to everything. Um, but just thinking of, of what that looks like and the prioritization of those data points. <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, you hit the nail on the head with it depends. Um, I, you know, <laughs> I'd say that at least 20 times a day. Um, but that really just gets what's important to you as a business. So um, when I've worked with clients before, um, sometimes their customer data is the most important data. And that's the lifeblood of, of their organization mm -hmm. and what it is that they're trying to um, solve for with the transformation. So I think those um, customer insights that are flowing, um, then that's their most important data. Um, for some others, it's margin and making sure their entire life of customer and doing it profitably. Um, and there was a transformation we went through where we made that information readily available. That was a big change for um, that organization because they really um, opened things up for their entire staff to see how much they were making given product and then that would negatively impact the profit of the sale, um, which was something that they mm -hmm. were really struggling with. They, they couldn't explain why, um, but they were losing money that just made no sense. And to open up the hood, you were able to see that there were uh, uh, non-value add uh, activities that really just eroded their margin. So they opened it up and yeah, absolutely. I, I think um, that's a, a great way to look at it. Okay, we're in the middle of a conversation with Kyler and Mitch talking about system architecture and design. We've got a lot more to cover, a lot more questions to get to, but first we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control.
If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 84. We're here in the middle of a conversation between Kyler and Mitch talking about system architecture and design. Let's continue the conversation. So looking under the hood, which, you know, is, is your main job, right, when it comes to um, system architecture, what are some, some main failure points that many times clients overlook? Can you say that one more time, that? Yeah, that one cut out on me. Yeah, no worries. So what are some main failure points you see within system architecture that um, that clients often overlook? Um, I would say that a lot of times the, the, the customizations that have been done and then putting that data into another system incredibly difficult. So a lot of the are built in a way to support um, fields that come in um, organically through the system. And so when you go in and you customize a field uh, in a way where it's hard coded in, and then you try and take that the output of that customization and transfer it over, um, we see that failing a lot of times. And then um, and putting in a manual process to either have that information in, which is not ideal, um, or they'll extract it from spreadsheet, manipulate it in Excel, and then plug it in their system, and allowing for um, that that integration that we have our clients go towards. Absolutely, and and when it comes to those pieces, those manual inefficient processes, mm -hmm. what's the relationship and balance between customizing? a software solution, and then changing your business processes. Because we know that there, there has to be a medium to meeting the technology where it is, but also understanding that you need to own your business processes and understand what's going to be most effective for your business. Yeah. So again, uh, going back to my standard stock consultant answer, it depends. And it depends on what we've seen is, you know, what is your, is this a competitive differentiator for you? And the reason that the software doesn't support it is because it's so unique and so special to you, or is this just an interesting And so having those looking introspectively and, and to understand and, and decide which one of those buckets it falls into uh, is a difficult task, but it's a really necessary one to make sure that um, your technology is actually supporting your business processes and your ability to scale and use technology efficiently um, versus what's comfortable in the way that you've done. 
That's, I think we should print what you just said on a t-shirt or tattoo it on, you know, your body or something like that. Um, but I think I'll that's so important to understand. Yeah. Right. Right. You, you pick the t-shirt instead of the tattoo. I understand. I understand. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but I think that's so, so important when it comes to understanding your competitive advantage in the marketplace versus what a software vendor might um, push on you as far as customization and the need for all of your systems to work together. So I want to show um, a comment here from Jose on, um, on YouTube that's joining us today from Portugal. Um, profitability analysis is a good highlight, as you mentioned. So let's dig into that. How many clients or can you give us kind of an example of a client that because of the limited visibility to data in their system architecture, were they losing money and not understanding how to optimize their profitability? Yeah. Um, you know, that really is a touchy subject. Uh, and this conversation comes up a lot where they don't want to expose that information to their staff. Um, they feel like that is for management eyes only. Um, and that, you know, someone could take that potentially proprietary information and go elsewhere with it. Um, so, so it is a, a touchy subject. There's a bit of trust and risk that goes into um, really opening and exposing that. But, um, you know, in my opinion, it's far riskier to trust your people to run a business with a blindfold on um, than it is to give them the information that they need to, to execute and extending trust and our clients that have done so have found real with it um they've been able to identify where there are um, unnecessary spend they've been able to identify where there are inefficiencies in their process um because really they're, they're allowing their smart people that are on their staff to look at the data that comes from the output of a, a digital transformation and do something about it yeah, absolutely. And I, I think there's levels right to that that transparency, but having that overall open door is going to create a culture of digital transformation and a, a data consuming culture. So how important is culture when it comes to understanding and activating system architecture? I, I mean, I think it's really important. I think that a system that is completely locked, um, what's the point? Uh, you know, the earth things, the idea is to bring relevant information to the right people. Um, now, I'm not saying open up everything for everyone. Um, you have to be thoughtful in what you're doing. Um, but if there's really a critical information that can help someone to do their job better, um, I especially think in this really competitive labor environment, um, open things them see what's going you know think critically through what's happening um and you'll get the most out of your employees by doing it that way um i, I just don't really think that there's a, a good alternative even though i understand it's risky absolutely and, and i think there's something to be said for empowering with data you know there there may be ways to kind of fence off access and understanding what's appropriate for management what's appropriate for front lines but creating an overall identity as a business that we utilize data to make the best decisions for the business as possible i think goes a long way 
And system architecture is really the fundamental need to be able to give that frontline access to that important information. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And actually, I had a client that, um, you know, they, they had different groups, they had siloed data, uh, and they were making decisions off of what was on the surface, the same was deliveries on time. And the different groups had access to the different data, which got them to a different answer deliveries on time. And they were making decisions that counteracted each other based on that same metric that was being calculated differently. Um, and so if you have that, you know, we talk about the single source of truth, but it's also access to relevant information from uh, um, the other groups that, that you may not know is relevant. Absolutely. And that is huge. And, and that brings me to a really good question and a key point here. Can you have executive alignment around any digital transformation or even a business strategy project? without an effective system architecture. Right. Yeah, I mean, you, you really, you can't do it. Um, you need to drive that visibility into what is the data? Where does it come from? What are we doing with it? And how can we bring that visibility that we're looking for? Um, then you get into the design and you're actually going to go about executing this. Um, and making it work because the architect guy work in a perfect world. Um, it can get a little hairy sometimes, but, but yeah. I think once you once you've identified the problems, then you can solve technologies. And you can't do that without the right architecture. A hundred percent. And so, let's talk about the third stage of system architecture. You know, you've selected the most effective software. You've um, integrated all of your different systems to optimize your data management and data consumption plans. How do you make sure and set expectations that the workforce is using that new actionable data within their day-to-day -day business operations? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, a lot of times we've done uh, and that that really my approach that I like to take with my clients because it's a living and breathing thing. You go live, that's when you're able to, um, you know, I, I think that you go live with about 80% of the functionality that you're looking for. No one goes live with 100%. So constant evaluation, reevaluation, and checking in on things is as you um, unleash, the, unleash the power of your system, your fully integrated system, you're going to identify other areas of opportunity for process improvement for you know at least a few months after and then six months after and then a year after you go live on what do we sense is there an opportunity you have to get the fundamentals down uh, but then you can really do some pretty advanced sophisticated things once you have your basis covered absolutely a hundred percent well in the last five minutes here, um, I want to kind of talk about some action steps that a business can go through in their digital transformation to ensure that they have effectively addressed their system architecture. So what are some top three tactics or strategies that organizations can undergo to ensure that they have that set for success? The, the first place that I'd have any clients start at um, step zero 
as we like to call it, is understand your environment. So look at what are what are my critical data elements, where are they coming from, um, and where what other systems use them or could value you from using them down the road. Um, action immensely to know, hey, you know, these two systems don't really talk well together, worth it to me that um, you know, the integration isn't as strong as it needs to be. Sometimes the answer is yes, sometimes the answer is no. So really just understanding um, your key critical data points, you know, where you'd like them to be used. Um, understanding your environment. Are there a lot of customizations within your environment today um, that might make a, a data transfer difficult? Um, and then also taking a look at, at your team. Where are your strong, where are your, um, and taking a good look at, you know, if you were to take on a digital transformation, I've worked clients that have really strong API team. Um, so they weren't scared by the fact that, um, you know, the systems are difficult to integrate because they were, they felt confident in open APIs. They can make it work. That's not staff. They have um, more networking and hardware focused IT. In that case, you probably need to go with a pretty, you know, out of the box API environment that really is pretty easy that any standard consultant could come in and um, and take care of that for you. So it's understanding what you're good at, understanding your data, and understanding your existing systems and, and the customizations. All right, thank you, Kyler and Mitch. Appreciate your presentation or your discussion here. This is a great conversation uh, and great topics to be aware of as it relates to system architecture and design. Um, we're gonna shift gears now and bring on another guest, our final guest of the show, uh, who's Khalid Morris along with Kyler again to talk about cybersecurity and data management. So this is sort of taking the thread that Mitch and Kyler were talking about, taking that one step further and going from system architecture and design now into cybersecurity and data management, which is a really important thing these days. And so we're gonna take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 84. My name is Eric Kimberling, and you can find new episodes every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as the audio podcast platforms. And be sure to follow myself and Third Stage Consulting on social media, whether it's Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, wherever you're on social media, be sure to check us out. We're constantly putting out new content daily on both of those channels, both my individual personal channels, as well as the uh, Third Stage Company branded channels. I'm excited for our last guest here. This is the area that I know the least amount of all of our guests that have been on the show so far today. 
This is the area that I'm the weakest in, so I'm really excited to have someone who knows a lot more about this stuff than I do, and that is uh, Khalid Morris. Uh, and that topic, by the way, is cybersecurity and data management. Huge deal right now. A lot of organizations struggling with cybersecurity and hacks and security breaches and data management. Similarly, not just the security of data, but just how do you manage your data in general. And by the way, that topic ties back to the conversation we just had with Mitch about system architecture and design too. So it, obviously a lot of overlap in these conversations here. So with all that being said, uh, Khalid and Kyler, thank you for being on the show and take it away. Uh, cybersecurity and uh, data management. I, uh, this is a, a, a complicated space, um, uh, particularly on the security front. There's a lot of moving parts here and there's a lot to um, uh, kind of sort your um, head around. Uh, so I definitely, I'm uh, happy to kind of be here and and, and to be able to um, at least provide a little guidance and hopefully hopefully uh, some of the things that I say uh, will be a benefit to those um, uh, that need. Um, we're really just going to talk about those two areas um, as a basic goal. Uh, we just want to sort of outline any security points for um, a technological solution and um, uh, likewise um, on the data management side of this. We'll keep it um, very basic and high level. Um, uh, so, you know, I, I, we're not necessarily going to drive too much into um, a bunch of hard details. It's it's sort of like a, a black hole. Once you kind of go down certain windows, you just can't come out. You just kind of stay right there because there's so much to talk about in um, uh, any one of, of, of these areas. Um, but hopefully we can field, sorry, field any, some questions um, um, that you have in those particular areas. Um, but other than that, I, I think we'll just want to try to give you a, a broader view of, um, uh, of, of what's kind of occurring. Um, uh, within the cybersecurity space, these are sort of the three blocks that I, I really want to touch on. Um, uh, first, access. Um, uh, and, and access is a you know, traditional, when you think of access, think about it from uh, access points um, for a, um, a particular um, technological solution. Um, those access points could be laptop, it could be, um, you could be on the office um, or, or, or network system, or um, you could be on your mobile. Um, there's different types of access points. And so um, when I think of access, I think about it across um, some of the, the, the ways that we access um, our technological data. Um, uh, security from uh, the perspective of an application, I'm thinking, or, or, or most of what I'm sharing here will be within the context of a configuration. So that's a build of the um, application itself and kind of how certain modules are uh, secured uh, versus um, others. And then on the data side, um, how data security works um, uh, with respect to these uh, individual applications or an overarching uh, uh, structure. Okay, in terms of uh, application access, uh, application access can be uh, fairly complicated um, uh, uh, nowadays. Uh, the basic parameter around uh, application access is authentication, either single factor or a multi-factor authentication. And this is sort of your basic passwords, or at least your, your basic password for the single factor. Multi-factor, they may have sort of that second, you remember a lot of the time, a lot of banks use this where uh, you may enter your password information, but then they'll require you to um, uh, validate that with your cell phone or have a security key around your cell phone or some sort of, you know, some sort of uh, 
of, of, of a remote access key that you sort of have to enter in order to get into the system. And uh, it's it's sort of a double layer and you sort of have to do it every single time. There usually isn't a safe space. That's usually what they're trying to get around is um, a uh, application that, uh, you know, or a lot of the browsers that might save your username and password and um, into their browser settings and uh, a user who isn't necessarily you can then use it. So that's how the, the multi-factor uh, kind of works. Um, on the client side, um, you know, an individual computer, if you will, uh, can have access, right? It could be a company issued laptop can have can have access to um, either a, a, a web-based um, application or even if it's not um, if you know certain IPS are accepted and certain ones aren't so if you're not trying to get into the system via um, uh, a, a approved clients then you then they won't allow you to necessarily uh, get into that particular system the other common uh, uh, use on the security front is network security. So you can lock down the whole network. So you can only access uh, a given uh, application if um, uh, you are on premise uh, or within the overall network and outside of that network. It's like a private kind of network uh, where, um, uh, you know, there, there are certain controls around that, uh, then you wouldn't necessarily be able to um, access the, the, the application or website even if you're not necessarily on site, like if you're just at home, you can't access it, but once you get on site, you can. Uh, and then there's cloud access. Clouds are pretty, um, if you, depending upon how a, a given uh, application or, or, or technological solution is sort of built, if it's built within a cloud structure, then you do have the parameters of a cloud. Um, and, and, and this also applies to certain um, uh, web-based systems. So if you think of a system that is totally um, designed and um, you know used in the cloud, it's completely 100% web-based. They are already are sort of automatically are subject to a lot of cloud-based um, uh, cybersecurity controls. I think though one of the important parts of um, that sort of needs to sort of get mentioned mentioned as it relates to the, uh, that is um, uh, on-premise uh, security is not necessarily safer. Um, then cloud-based security, I think that's a, a common misconception. It's been a misconception for years and years. I think maybe originally, it, it, I think there was some validity, validity to it. Uh, but at this point, uh, there's not that much validity to it. And it's not to say that on-premise uh, uh, solutions aren't secure or that they can't be more secure uh, than the cloud, because they certainly, they certainly can. Um, it's just the likelihood is low. And a, a lot of that has to do with the fact that um, a lot of cloud-based companies, I mean, they have teams that, uh, uh, cybersecurity teams, that, uh, that, is, that is their job, that is the job of the team to secure the cloud. So you don't really hear about a ton of breaches. You hear about a breach every now and then, um, but you know, there's probably people trying to attack um, us, uh, you know, cloud, cloud infrastructures or applications every day, um, and, and they're not particularly successful. So there's multiple levels um, at the cloud on the cloud side where there's security. And so it just becomes um, a lot of layers for a, a given hacker to kind of uh, come through. So uh, as it relates to recommendations, um, I, I do want to make a note that, you know, and this is maybe it's just me um, having, you know, dealt in this particular space and seen a lot of different um, sort of build outs. I, I do think it's important to note that you want to be careful with respect to security and you don't want to necessarily create a poor user experience or 
um, a, a bunch of inefficiencies that uh, develop in your organization because you're almost oversecured. Um, I, I know that sounds um, ridiculous, but um, in, in, in some cases I've seen it. And um, all of this is going to be subject to a lot of the uh, you know, the, the parameters that uh, organization has to work within. Uh, if you can imagine HIPAA, for example, if you, if you have to deal with HIPAA laws, um, then you have certain security measures that you have to follow. Likewise, um, if you're maybe a public company or, or something like that. So, so there's no broad brush here as it relates to security. I think that there's some baselines that have to be factored in across uh, every organization. And, and, and kind of when you're starting to work with an organization at this particular, you start to create like or, or at least outline what some of those requirements are going to be and you sort of attack them there, right? Particularly like a banking, they may have some different requirements than maybe a manufacturing company. But just in general, you do want to kind of think about how do you kind of create an environment where there is ease of use. I personally like to kind of think about it from a client access versus with maybe multi-factored if, um, if, if that's more desired or sort of switching it. If there's a lot of network access with quality security there, then having the security knowing that, okay, we can, we can do more single factor authentication because you can really only access this when you're on the network to begin with. So there's ways to kind of make that easy rather than create an environment, for example, where you got multi-layer, um, uh, multi-factor authentication and you have net network access um, authentication. You know, it's it's just, it turns into a space where it's like we're securing at every single level and it just creates um, it, uh, a, a, a certain difficulty when uh, trying to uh, get access to your um, uh, when trying to get access to an application. So um, that's uh, application access uh, in terms of configuration access. Uh, a given every ERP system will have some form of configuration uh, security. And um, I, I, I really, um, I think the, the same point applies here with respect to being over secured, but, but, I, but I do kind of want to walk through a lot of these recommendations and, and kind of how app, uh, uh, configuration security kind of works. Um, because an application will have a set of defined roles. And I think it's very, very important, particularly during an implementation, that um, uh, that those administration roles are taken uh, seriously. Everyone kind of wants to raise their hand, you know, and say, "No, I'll, I'll be a super user, or I'll be one of the administrators." Um, uh, but then, you know, the organization sort of starts to become dependent upon that particular role, and if they don't necessarily if they're not available uh, to, um, for example, if you're one of the security administrators, um, you know, and you have to provide access to a new user, um, if you're not available or you don't, you don't really know how to do it or really, really want to do it, um, then it sort of creates uh, an issue within the overall organization. So um, usually administration is happening at every single module. There's usually some form of of security administrator for every single module within an, an, an application. And then there's some form of, um, of security administrator for the overall um, uh, application uh, in general. And um, uh, so it's important to sort of create um, what I'm calling the security metrics where you have those user roles sort of outlined uh, across your organization sort of and, and kind of fit that and review that and make sure that the right people are associated with that and make sure that there's proper backup for um, for a given role uh, so that you don't create a scenario where um, you have this application and that that needs an approval 
and there's no one to approve or um, that role has not necessarily been defined yet or the person that's on approval is on vacation right now or maybe they just left the organization and there's no one there for for backup it sort of creates this um, again inefficiency um, uh, within a given process or within the organization that a lot of the times can sort of be be uh, be, be handled um, through uh, a, a a, a well-defined security metrics, um, you know, and, uh, and the unfortunate part about it is a lot of those security metrics are done in Excel. So there's no real notification process when an individual leaves or when an individual is um, uh, uh, um, on vacation. Um, but just the same, it's very, very important uh, that you at least at a bare minimum know whose responsibility is what within the application or within a configuration so that you can kind of go to that particular person uh, particularly when consultants are gone, when the consultants uh, are no longer in the room and you're, and you're responsible for the entire application. And this can be a problem. Okay, and then there's data security. I think data security is, I don't say it's often overlooked, uh, but there's, and I, I lump into there some of the integration components, um, um, but uh, you can have security at the database level. Right. So you can have your application grade, you can access in it, but then the data itself maybe sits on a server, a SQL server, and there's security points um, there. You can also kind of have um, a web service uh, security points um, where um, there's um, password sort of authentication uh, revolving around a given API. So what uh, web service can call into that particular uh, database to uh, access um, uh, uh, data, um, that security point. Um, needs to be uh, well-defined as well. Um, there's a, a certain amount of security that can be, this might be application specific, but can be around uh, individual reports. Uh, some applications sort of allow for um, that level of definition um, where you, know, you, you, you have a given report and only certain people can sort of see this report. Other organizations may put it within the context of a module, I'm sorry, other softwares may put it within the context of, a, of, of an overall module, you have access to the module, you don't necessarily have access to a module or, or specific pieces of that particular module. But um, I'm talking specifically about a data report here and uh, the use of that. Um, some organizations sort of have uh, 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 data points, uh, I'm sorry, access points around that. Uh, data encryption here um, as it relates to data, I think is a very important uh, detail. Uh, data encryption and then data um, uh, encrypting folders. You can encrypt the data itself so that there's um, uh, a certain types of, of, um, uh, of uh, you know, masking for the individual data fields within sort of a, a, data, a, a data set, right? Or you can, so, and you can also encrypt folders where that data, in, where that data lives. Uh, the encryption of folders is critical, certainly for um, implementation um, uh, integrations. Um, uh, you kind of have to have that. And I think I, I note that a little bit later on. But the data encryption for specific data within a database um, is, a, is a level of sensitivity that, you know, I think is, is uh, should only sort of be reserved to certain types of data. Um, and all of this for me kind of gets into the need to uh, really outline where your sensitive data is. Um, uh, because there's, there's certain data within your organization that um, you're, you're legally bound to uh, protect certain ways. Um, things like social security numbers, credit cards, et cetera, et cetera. A, a breach there could, could be on a different scale, particularly if it's um, you know, customer related or, 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 or something on that scale. So 
uh, it's important to kind of go through your over all the data that your organization kind of has and sort of outline the buckets where uh, sensitive where sensitive data lives. It's not all the same and it's not all sh it shouldn't all be treated the same way and it shouldn't all live in the same place necessarily. I think that um, I think we've, we've gotten to a point where we can segment um, um, certain parts of our data and it not necessarily uh, be a, a big thing. Uh, um, uh, with respect to your overarching um, architecture. Uh, so, you know, outlining the data that must be protected, outlining the data that needs to be protected. So data such as financial data, right? You don't want profitability to um, necessarily be seen. If it does, it's not the end of the world, but uh, you, you, you might want to guard against some of that particular data uh, or uh, some of the uh, salary, for example, data. Uh, you may uh, want, um, you know, one, you know, one, you know, one person salary, even the same level, you don't necessarily want um, uh, everyone to, uh, to, to see that. And so the data measures around these buckets of sensitivity can be slightly different. And uh, that not that's not necessarily odd, um, um, per se. Um, uh, I think it's uh, very important to uh, have a flexible strategy there um, to um, outline those particular data sets and then sort of apply uh, the necessary security measures um, um, as a result. So that's uh, data security. Okay, we're here in the middle of a conversation talking about cybersecurity and data management with Kyler and Khalid. We've got a lot more to get to, a lot of more great questions and conversations. But first, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting, and we recently hosted our Digital Stratosphere 2022 virtual event. It's three days of packed content related to digital transformation best practices, about 16 or 18 different workshops and different speakers that are presenting on different topics, everything you need to know about transformation. The, the bad news is you, if you miss that event, the event's over. The, the live event already happened. But the good news, if you've missed it, or even if you did attend it and you want to see replays or you want to catch the sessions you missed, you can do that now by going to stratosphere2022.com. Go to stratosphere2022.com, register. All you have to do is put in your, your name and email address, uh, just a few fields. You get immediate access to all the recordings and the recordings cover everything from digital strategy, um, software selection, organizational change, process improvement, architecture, data migration, cloud, trends in the industry, um, how to avoid failure, some of the legal aspects to think about, contractual aspects to think about as it relates to your transformation. All that is stuff that you'll get by registering for Stratosphere 2022 replay. And again, go to stratosphere2022.com and you can listen to all the replays of all the workshops that you might have missed at the event. So hope you check it out and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 84. We're here with Khalid and Kyler talking about cybersecurity and data management. We'll turn it back over to you guys. Uh, now I kind of want to touch a little bit around data management. For, I guess, overall data structure, um, I, I think it's important to define data management um, because a lot of people use it. Uh, I, I hear it so many different ways. Um, I, I think about it as the whole suite. I think about it as everything data related. I think about it as any policies, procedures, uh, data structures, like everything is on the table as it relates to, um, uh, to, to data management in my mind. 
Um, I, I think as a, as a practice, and I, I, I rarely see this, honestly, organizations that have a data dictionary, but there should be certain uh, identification, understanding of the type of data um, that you have um, uh, within your organization. Like, like, what is it? Like, like what kind of data um, is it um, in, your, or in, in your system? Is it uh, data that lives? Uh, is it role-based? Is it transactional? Is it analytical? What type of data is it? Um, is it structured? Is it unstructured? I mean, those are all pieces I think that uh, mean something. And um, outlining that uh, within an overarching uh, dictionary, or really uh, architecture that sort of um, has all the different data models um, outlined within your organization is a good thing. I, I don't, I don't think it's necessarily a favorite thing to do, particularly within the IT community. Um, but uh, this, this, this last point here that I have outlined, I think, is a, a noteworthy one that uh, a lot of organizations miss, and that is data is a very valuable asset. Um, organizations are making money around data. I mean, there some organizations are built around um, uh, reselling data, uh, your data. Um, other organizations' uh, data that they, you know, passively uh, give to um, uh, these uh, organizations, and they then uh, turn around and um, uh, create uh, marketing value um, out of those particular data points. I, I, I just say that to say that that approach to data should should be taken a little bit more seriously, I think, within our organizations. And this is part of that piece, like understanding the data that you have, understanding uh, uh, the overall structures of the different data sets, um, being able to identify any holes in these particular sets from a governance perspective. So after you create sort of a process, end-to-end uh, -end model, uh, all the different uh, data models that are there, and then kind of create this sort of process, a mapping that uh, uh, shows kind of how data flows across your organization. I think you'll start to maybe even identify uh, where there's holes, especially as it relates to um, integration, uh, and then creating sort of a regularly backed up uh, schedule um, that's even absent of uh, maybe maybe you put it into your cloud environment, you kind of know where it is, uh, just in case um, you, you know you have to kind of you know call that data later in the event that uh, something um, happens. I think that's very, very important. I think those kind of strategies, I think, are uh, critical um, uh, within, I think, a well-functioning organization. And so, uh, uh, you know, data should be securely backed up. There should be proper locations. A lot of that, you know, should live within a cloud structure. There are usually um, ERP applications will provide some type of dynamic for that. One of the partners will provide some kind of service offering um, kind of around that. You should be able to just sort of do that natively through um, a basic kind of structure, even if you put a lot of those backup files into uh, an encrypted uh, folder or share folder that that, that you sort of have, um, that works too. But understanding where it is, understanding what it is and how it lives, I think is, um, is, is very, very uh, important. So that's um, a data structure. In terms of um, big data, once you get outside of the structure of it and you kind of get into the actual data sets, uh, some organizations, not all organizations, live in a big data world. And I think when you hear the term big data, a lot of the times it um, uh, really integrates a lot of the different data sets that are out there um, because you, you, you can now you have or today we have more access to 
um, uh, to different types of data that we can then sort of, um, you know, bring into um, our current data structures. And that sort of creates this dynamic where there's just a lot of data to sort of sift through. But individually, some organizations have huge data sets. Um, used to do a lot of work in the telecom space. And, uh, you know, they would have these insanely large data files, um, uh, if you can imagine, because they have so many, so many customers and um, the transactions for those customers would sort of extend over years. Uh, so, you know, you would have these streams uh, of, 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 of data. So um, as it relates to that, I think it does still kind of go back to architecture a little bit and kind of understanding first kind of where your data is, uh, uh, you know, and then why that data is as big as it is. A, a lot of the times it's not so much based upon, you know, the basic parameters around we have so many customers, right? Like, like, like yes, that's um, a, a, a normal use case for um, having a large data sets. Um, but a lot of the times it may be how the data is uh, kept. It may be where uh, the data is kept. Um, certain um, uh, uh, databases may uh, may create a larger sort of, uh, of um, um, it, it, it made the storage requirements for those data sets, for those databases may be larger than others. I really think of structured versus unstructured data. A lot of those structured um, uh, data uh, uh, storage uh, pieces are gonna be larger. Uh, and, and, and as a result, I think you can potentially consider unstructured data if you kind of need to skinny some of that up. Um, why you would want to skinny some of that up is because sometimes big data can be a problem. Um, sometimes it can cause issues with respect to loading. So um, a lot of applications that are kind of slowly loading are oftentimes loading that way because the data set is too large. Um, there are certain parameters around um, uh, applications that sort of a RAM, for example, that sort of limit or in memory, um, uh, uh, it might, you know, sort of limit how large a data set can sort of be brought into um, a space to be analyzed. Uh, and uh, as a result, kind of, you may need to skinny some of that data down. There are ways to do that without necessarily, um, um, uh, you know, sort of, you know, removing your data, but, you know, there, there, there are ways to sort of skinny it down by just changing the structure from, uh, from structured to unstructured or, or having proper filtering so that we're really just calling the data that we absolutely need. Um, but there's some strategy that you can uh, incorporate within your overall design. And, and I think that strategy points back to what is the overall arching data architecture and having a data architecture that um, uh, allows for uh, the need to bring in the kind of data that you need to bring in um, in manageable ways. Uh, one way to uh, the tools that are sort of used for this is ETL. For those that don't know what that is, that's extract, transform, and load, uh, where you're extracting data from one place and you're transforming it. Maybe you're transforming it based upon a set of parameters. You might be filtering it down. You might be creating um, a logic around that to sort of aggregate parts of that particular data that might skinny skinny up um, some, some data. You might be um, creating calculations around some of those um, data sets to sort of uh, produce sort of a certain result. And then you load that into the system that you want that system loaded to. Sometimes you're just putting it into a skinny, um, uh, sometimes you're putting it into an encrypted folder for an application to sort of pick up. But um, it's sort of a more common tool um, that's used also APIs. It's not here, but an API is uh, also a, a, a means for um, calling data uh, from a, a, a different place. 
Um, but in general, um, you know, you, you have to sort of create sort of uh, an environment where um, your, your your data isn't necessarily as big as um, um, as it uh, as is lean. You want to create an environment where your data is lean versus uh, unnecessarily big. Um, and also, you want to uh, if you have those backups stored, that's great. Uh, you want to delete as a result of that. Maybe if you have a backup and you have a policy that says we're going to delete um, uh, files within the application because we have them backed up after a certain point um, and we're going to decommission, you know, after a further point. So you can kind of have strategies that sort of create uh, a skinny or lean environment uh, and uh, the skinnier, the lean, the leaner the environment, the faster the overall application can kind of perform. Uh, so uh, you do want to kind of think about um, all of those different components. But um, just just to reiterate the point, um, uh, big data can be a problem. Uh, it can be a, it can create a lot of uh, performance issues uh, within an application and 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 really bother the overall uh, end user experience. Um, but it also is a manageable one. So um, you know you can kind of create some um, uh, ways to kind of work around any uh, big data issues that you may be having if you deal uh, with larger uh, data sets. And lastly, here on the integration side, um, integration is, uh, it's, I think, you know, the, one of the most critical parts of an organization's digital strategy. Um, as great as the idea is that you have one system where all your data exists, uh, where everyone lives in this one place and it does everything that we need it to do. Um, the likelihood of having that is low, uh, to be frank, um, uh, you know, especially as your organization becomes uh, more and more complicated. Uh, you have needs that sort of extend beyond the capacity of um, an ERP system that that's that's working for you. And it doesn't necessarily mean we need to we need to go buy another ERP system. It may mean that, um, but you may then just have uh, a, a third party tool that works in conjunction with your ERP system. And after that, at that point, you then have an integration uh, issue to sort of manage. Um, I think that uh, you have to design a plan uh, for uh, your overall integrations. And um, it's important to understand that this should be based upon your data needs. Uh, not necessarily. I mean, when, when when you know people think about integrations, they kind of think about the tools and 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 and. But but they don't necessarily treat integrations a lot of the times as sort of a separate um, uh, requirement gathering sort of stage. A lot of the times, uh, functional requirements are gathered. Um, applications are sort of selected uh, based upon that. Decisions are made on the functional side, and integration is sort of a back burner. Um, but I can assure you, I've been on several implementations that have been delayed because the functional side is well, you know, well down the line of of doing the things that they, um, uh, uh, you know, need to do, and the integration part is lacking. Uh, integration is is a core part of of, of all of this, and you kind of have to outline requirements for them separately. Um, if, and 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 if those requirements extend beyond the application itself on the functional side, then you kind of need to have a plan for how you're going to uh, integrate those particular data points. I think that uh, those requirements can extend into issues such as, and we kind of talked about this in a in a in a separate session. I think that, that Kyler was kind of referencing, but batch data versus having real-time access to that, that particular data. Um, those are, are based upon your needs, again, not necessarily based upon 
um, what's what's cool or what's ideal. And you may not necessarily need that data in real time. And if you don't, then you know there's no need to spend extra to try to create uh, a customization or a um, an, an API. A web, a web service, if you will, that uh, can do something like that. Uh, some some kind of batch may be just fine for that. So it should all be based upon your particular needs. Work within the structures of these ETL API kind of tools that are kind of out there. A lot of applications will have uh, packaged APIs that they already um, have, are pre-configured to sort of uh, manage against. Others may not, and they may have uh, APIs that, uh, you know, that uh, you, you sort of have to use through a tool, an ETL type of tool. Others may, you know, other requirements may, you know, call for an API to be custom. Uh, in that situation, I think you wanna avoid that as much as possible, but um, you know, there are situations where a custom API may be necessary uh, to call particular data. But in either event, I think that's all requirement-based. So it's very important that you outline with what requirements you sort of have. Uh, the other part to uh, integration is, uh, and, and most people have this, but it's just important to note is you're gonna need a data encryption um, uh, strategy. And a lot of that will revolve around uh, folders, um, uh, encrypted folders that are somewhere in your shared structure. Um, uh, you know, where sort of data is going to sort of live, having a, a, a even a smart naming system for a lot of these folders so that you know a particular folder only has um, it can only receive certain data files having a naming convention for um, the files that are produced in there that that convention could be based upon the name of you know the data that's sort of there it could be a date that's a, it can be timestamp associated with that it could be um, uh, you know, some it could be a standard name. It could be a lot of integrations pick up a particular file name. So it could be a situation where you just name it, um, you know, file, and 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 the integration knows to pick up the file from this particular location, and um, and the name of that um, uh, pickup file is file, right? So so you can uh, do this a number of different ways, and I think there's a strategy around what makes the most sense for the overall organization. Uh, when you're sort of outlining um, where uh, files you know should be and kind of what those names should be and um, all the likes. And again, all of this for me comes back to uh, the integration requirements and understanding what exactly are the needs of the organization for this particular uh, data set. And uh, once you kind of define those, I think the strategy and, and the other parts start to become simple. Um, a lot of the times this effort doesn't necessarily get done until you know, until you kind of get into the middle of an implementation. And I think it can cause some delays as a result. Uh, you want to get on um, this as early as possible and start to um, share early in your implementation how you need uh, your integrations to go, how you sort of need your data to sort of be managed. I think that makes the overall experience a little bit easier. Okay, thank you, Kyler and Khalid. Really appreciate your time here today. Great conversation, super interesting. I always learn a lot when I hear you guys talk about this topic of cybersecurity and data management. And like a lot of organizations, this is this is a big topic for a lot of organizations. So really appreciate you, your, your contributions here. And I also appreciate all the guests we had here today. This is a great episode. And I particularly like uh, sort of this think tank we've assembled here for today's episode of a, a lot of different guests with a lot of diverse perspectives on digital transformation, particularly as it relates to business processes, operations, and some of the technological architecture, cybersecurity sides of things. So really appreciate uh, all the guests we had here today. I also want to thank the audience here for listening. 
Uh, again, you can find new episodes every Wednesday on all the audio podcast platforms as well as LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. So uh, be sure to check us out there and go back to listen to any of the older episodes. We have uh, usually two to three hour episodes every week. Uh, every week we do have an episode. Usually they're more than two hours. So we, we cover a ton of stuff uh, in these episodes. So be sure to go back and check some of the, the uh, older episodes as well if, when you get a chance. So I want to thank you all for being here today. Hope you have a great week and we'll see you next week on Transformation Ground Control. Mm-hmm.